Okay. Woohoo! Excellent. Welcome, everybody. Welcome. Oh, I'm going to adjust my camera and everything. Okay. Welcome back to the Mythgard Academy. This is our 16th and final session on the War of the Ring. We are going to finish tonight, pretty much no matter what happens. Uh, and uh, I have some incentive to be comparatively uh, uh, concise tonight uh, as uh, I'm leaving for Mythmoot first thing in the morning. Uh, actually, before the morning. So, so, but first we have an exciting announcement, and that is the winner of the election for the next books that we're going to do. So, here it is. Ready? Here it is. This is the suspense. Okay. And the winner is... Sauron defeated! Oh, who saw that coming, right? I mean, oh my goodness. That just came out of nowhere. The next volume of the History of Middle-Earth believe it or not, is the one that uh, we're going to do. So, okay, um, that, that obviously is not the surprise, um, nor is this the one that we're going to do next. Right. We are going to do this one. Looking forward to doing this one, uh, getting the final tail end, because, uh, of course, you'll notice we've ended the War of the Ring, and the end of the War of the Ring goes through the end of Book 5 as if it were taking Tolkien at his word. Remember, he's like, the fifth and final book. That's it, right? And so we get to the end of Book 5 at the end of this book. And uh, uh, and and then, you know, he's just like, and the end, right? We, uh, but, of course, we know Book 6 is going to come. So we will have to do Book 6, which, of course, gets done at, at the end of uh, at the end of the section that he calls, Christopher calls, the end of the Third Age, which is the first section uh, of the uh, of Sound Defeated. But that's not what we're doing next. Uh, the... Um, the 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 next thing we're going to do and this one is this one is the big reveal is Sir Thomas Mallory Le Mort d'Arthur we are doing the complete works of Sir Thomas Mallory uh, a legitimate uh, a legitimate work of medieval literature uh, so we've we've had now Boethius is no longer alone as our first old book um, well I guess you know uh, uh, some people might consider Dracula an old book though I don't. Um, Anyway, this is going to be so much fun. Now, let me warn you, this is a thick book under any circumstances, right? Um, and we are going to read this in Middle English because it is so much more fun in Middle English. And don't be intimidated uh, because Mallory's Middle English is very, very easy. It's, I mean, it's the vowel shift is already happening um, in Mallory's time. And uh, it's it's super easy to get the hang of. Um, you just kind of, you know, once you get adjusted to the spelling, like, you know, Y's all over the place and that kind of thing, uh, it's really it's really pretty fast to read. So, Karita, good edition. So, uh, or good, good question, which edition? So, okay, it's complicated. Uh, let me explain this briefly. So, here's the thing. There, when you're looking for an edition of Sir Thomas Mallory, there are several different factors that you have to keep in mind. It is definitely true that not all uh, editions of Mallory are going to be created equal. Um, for one thing, uh, many editions of Mallory that you will find uh, are not uh, uh, unabridged, right? We're going to read uh, Mallory unabridged. We're not going to read any abridgment. We don't play like that. So... First, you have to find an unabridged edition of Mallory, which can be harder than you think. Um, the second 
Yeah, Tom, exactly. Sir Gowan and the Green Knight, it is not. Absolutely. Uh, Sir Gowan and the Green Knight is super difficult Middle English. Uh, that's like Middle English, which is off towards Anglo-Saxon, uh, whereas Mallory's is much more towards modern English. Uh, anyway, okay. So, uh, first you've got to find an unabridged edition, right? Then, as I say, I want to read this in Middle English. Uh, you've got to get... We, when you have the... like, Basically, this is just kind of general principle, Right. Whenever you have the opportunity to read something in the original language instead of in translation, you absolutely should, right? We need to read as close as we can to what Maori wrote. And his his language and turns of phrase are so much fun. Uh, there will, I promise you, there will be so many things that you would just absolutely miss uh, if you uh, if you read it in a modern English translation. And it's totally unnecessary uh, to... Uh, uh, to read Maori in a modern translation. Because, again, it's not like Sir Gowan and the Green Knight. It's not even like Chaucer. It's super easy. Super easy uh, to read. So, we're going to totally do that. Um, so, you need an unabridged edition, and you need an edition in Middle English. But, see, it, 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 we're still not down to the, uh, uh, to the end of the, of the issue here. Because, okay... A brief history of uh, Maori's text. So Maori's uh, collection of Arthurian stories was one of the first things ever published, ever printed, I should say, in English. Um, when William Caxton um, started, you know, had the first printing press in England uh, in the late 15th century, uh, Canterbury Tales was the first thing he published. Le Mort d'Arthur was the second thing that he published. Le Mort d'Arthur, by the way, is the title given to it by Caxton. Um, so Caxton publishes uh, Maori's work, and for centuries, Caxton's edition of Maori's work was what we had. Like, that was Sir Thomas Maori. Um, so when you read, for instance, about, uh, like, say you're reading, um, uh, you know, C.S. Lewis is surprised by joy, and he's talking about how he read Sir Thomas Maori when he was a kid— Caxton's Maori is what he read, right? Um, but then there was a really a quite dramatic moment. In fact, it's really kind of one of the more dramatic moments of medieval scholarship in the 20th century. The manuscript is discovered, right? Maori's manuscript. In fact, it's the manuscript. You, you, you can tell there's physical evidence that it's the manuscript that Caxton used in order to make his printed edition. So uh, that's. Um, um, that was, it was just a, a huge, huge discovery. It's called the Winchester Manuscript. So now we don't just have Caxton's edition of Maori. Now we have Maori's original manuscript, right? Um, and when you read the Winchester Manuscript, you discover that Caxton did what editors do, right? He reorganized stuff. He rearranged things. Uh, and uh, I'm not saying that he butchered the book, but it's not the same, right? So, personal. So that uh, there are um, there are some people who, uh, when you know, when when reading or, or teaching Maori, are like, I don't care, like you know. Caxton is what's good, you know, like that's like the traditional text and there ain't nothing wrong with it. So we're going to do that. I'm kind of a Winchester manuscript guy. I really like because and one of the reasons I really like this is you can really see Mallory's like learning his way. Right. You know, uh, like as a storyteller, as a writer, he is by the end, he's really, really good. Less good at the beginning. Uh, uh, but anyway, the whole story really kind of uh, develops and grows. So. 
I want you to get an unabridged copy of the text. I want you to get an unabridged copy of the text in Middle English. And I want you to get an unabridged copy of the text in Middle English that is based on the Winchester manuscript and not on Caxton, uh, Caxton's printed edition. Uh, the one that I recommend, the one I've been waving around here, um, it's just titled Mallory Complete Works. It's available in paperback, relatively inexpensive for a book of this heft. Uh, and the editor... Of this, this is uh, this is a this is a classic text, one of the first editions. Um, uh, that is, this is one of the first published editions of the Winchester manuscript after it was discovered. Um, it's edited by Eugene Vinaver, V-I-N-A-V-E-R, Eugene Vinaver. Um, it's not going to top, you know, the bestseller list uh, in uh, you know most of the Amazon lists or anything, um, but it should still be available. I'm pretty sure still available. Um, uh, I, I believe so. It's a very common teaching text. So um, that's the one that I recommend that we use. Now, you may be asking yourself, because it's not always easy to see, or, you know, like they don't always trumpet it on the, you know, in the blurb or something like that. Like, and when you're looking at a text, like, how do you know whether this is based on Caxton or based on the Winchester manuscript? There's a dead giveaway. Caxton divided it into chapters, right? Um, uh so when you're looking at a copy of Maori and it's like chapter one, chapter two, chapter three, that's Caxton, right? Um, and now let me say, if you read a Caxton text, it's not the end of the world, right? It's fine. Like it's mostly, again, it's going to, we're going to, there going to be some organization issues. I'm going to try to kind of keep up with that to make sure that people who are reading a Caxton text can follow along, a Caxton based text can follow along. Um, but I'm going to be working our way through this. Now, into all these policies comes the other issue. I know that many of you, like me, are audiophiles. And many of you are asking yourself, this sounds great, but uh, does an unabridged audio recording of Sir Thomas Mallory exist? Because if it doesn't, I'm not sure I'm going to be able to keep up with this class. The answer is... Yes and no. Does one exist? Does an unabridged edition exist? Indeed, yes. In fact, Audible, uh, audible.com features two unabridged editions of Sir Thomas Mallory, uh, one older and one newer. Um, both of them are fine. Both of them I can recommend. The newer one, which is a little bit uh, longer, I think, just because the guy reads more slowly generally. Uh, but anyway, the, uh, the, I, was it Chris O'Donnell? Or I forget his name, the name of the narrator. Uh, but anyway, um, it's good. I've, I've listened to it. It's fine. But he reads it in modern English. Now, the modern English that he reads follows Mallory's English fairly closely. Um, it's not the same, right? Because here's the thing. There doesn't exist any unabridged recording of the Middle English in Middle English in, with, like, authentic Middle English pronunciation. You can get snippets of it. But it's not available. Uh, the unabridged there there is no like thirty eight hour recording, and the the audible one is about thirty eight hours long. The unabridged one, um, there is a thirty eight uh, hour uh, 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 reading in modern translation. For some reason, there is not. There doesn't exist a thirty eight hour long unabridged Middle English pronunciation version. This is one of the things that I would like to see exist before I die. That's like on my bucket list. My bucket list is an unabridged Middle English reading of Sir Thomas Mallory. Now, we're going to begin our discussion of Sir Thomas Mallory uh, by learning how to pronounce it, right? So I'm going to help you guys learn how to pronounce it, and it's going to be super fun. 
and then you guys can all help me make a recording. Um, and yeah, this, Yana, this is in the public domain. And I will say, like, of course, there, there are many texts of this that are publicly available, even in Middle English. Um, but um, I, almost every... I have not found... I haven't done a... I haven't searched for this in a while, and I haven't had time yet uh, since the announcement, since the discovery of uh, uh, the joyous tidings of uh, uh, Maori's victory here. Um, anyway, I haven't had time to do full research yet. I have not found an online, um, you know, publicly available edition of the Winchester Manuscript text. There's lots of Caxtons out there, um, at even both in modern translation and in Middle English. Um, so lots of opportunities to find free uh, uh, um, uh, online copies of it. Um, and Yana, yeah, I am going to be I am going to be researching um ebook versions it's i haven't yet found one the vanover text is not available in an e-version to my i was really like crossing my fingers uh when i was looking that up in kindle and ibooks and uh searching around and i haven't yet found anything yet um but um yeah yeah uh, that one is um yeah veronica that one's abridged though i believe the one you just linked to um yeah yeah. Anyway, um, there's um, there's there's lots of well we'll we'll get to working on this. I'm sure among us we can we can sort out all of our problems here. Um, one of the upsides, I will be listening along to the audible recording as well. Um, and it's actually it's something that I've never done, so I'm I'm really actually excited to do this. So like for my own personal um, uh, kind of nerdy interest. I'm actually kind of interested to listen to the Caxton, to the, you know, the Caxton, uh, to listen to a reading based on the Caxton edition while I'm going through the print version of the Winchester text, because I've never done a comparison that close before, just kind of, kind of big picture stuff. Um, so, I mean, I've done a little bit <clears throat> already, just kind of listening and following along in the text as I go, just to see, you know, how close it is. And it's pretty close. Um, Anyway, so if you're a total audiophile and there's no way you'd have time to read this in print and you you absolutely rely uh, upon an audio version, the unabridged audible one is fine. It's fine. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, Tim, this is this is the Oxford University Press edition of uh, the, the, the uh, it's Oxford UP that publishes uh, uh, the Vinover edition. But be careful because the Oxford Classics uh, Maori, which is edited by Helen Cooper, who's a wonderful scholar, but it's abridged. That's an abridged version, so it's not it's not it's it, it says like Winchester manuscript in the uh, in the title and everything, but it's abridged, so no good. Um, anyway, anyway, um, so. There we are. Lots of things to, and you know, we'll have a web page, and I'll have a bunch of information up on that. But so, also, I got to tell you, this is going to take us a while, right? I mean, this is we're doing our first ever book that's not in modern English, right? I mean, of course, Boethius was written in Latin, but we were reading it in modern translation. Um, so we're going to read an untranslated, non-modern English text, which also happens to be the second longest book overall that we've read, right? So, um, uh, and it's not even that far behind Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norrell being the previous longest single book we've done. 
Um, uh, I think there's a little bit more print per page on this one than on my edition of uh, uh, Susanna Clark. But anyway, um, so uh, this is going to take us a while. I'm not going to lie. We're, we're going to be doing Mallory for a while. If we're done with Mallory before New Year's, I'm going to be surprised, to be perfectly honest with you. Um, so it's, um, it's going to be... Um, uh, uh, it's going to, it's going to take a while and I'm not even going to try. I'm not even going to try to project exactly. So don't expect from me a list of class sessions, like, uh, you know, all the way out through the end of the book, because that would be purest. That would be absolutely ridiculous. I think I'm just going to go a couple sections at a time, see how we do, uh, and then publish a new schedule as we continue to move forward. So, um, we're gonna, we're gonna, we're gonna, work our way. And I'm not, you know, obviously we're not going to go, you know, exploring the Lord of the Rings pace with this. Um, but especially in the early stages, I'm not going to hurry. Um, uh, as we're getting adjusted to the language and everything, it's going to, it's going to take a while. So, um, so yeah. Um, (laughs) so, so there we go. Um, yeah, well, exactly. Uh, if I make the whole, the, the thing, then yeah, we'd have to be, uh, I'd have to be updating it constantly. And that's, uh, that gets annoying, uh, easier for me just to do, a uh, to release a new section, uh, of the schedule, um, uh, later on. So, um, I do think I did, <laughs> we are going to finish Sir Thomas Mallory before we finish the Fellowship of the Ring and exploring the Lord of the Rings. I'm very confident about that. In fact, uh, I bet we'll be done with this before we start the Council of Elrond. There's my bold prediction uh, in exploring the Lord of the Rings. But uh, and then we have Sauron defeated to do next year. So <laughs> the books that we—I mean, that was my first reaction when I uh, when I heard the the two books that won this election. I'm like, well, that's like almost the entire next year, uh, basically worth of books. Um, so um, yeah, yeah, that's um, that's the, <laughs> that's that that that's the plan. We'll see. We'll see how that goes. It'll probably be late spring uh, before our next. Uh, 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 Mythgard Academy election, uh, actually. So we'll, but we'll, there, there's other things we can do. We'll sort that out. Okay. So no, Craig, we don't have the sign up link yet. Um, we'll, we'll be getting that. Uh, I'll be releasing that after Mythmoot. My plan, my plan is to start on, um, oh, what's the, what's the date? Sorry. Let me look at my calendar here. What's the, uh, so, uh, not, I think we're going to take two weeks off. So the 11th, that's the one. Um, so yeah, I'm thinking of the 11th, um, July 11th will be the beginning of our class. That'll give me some time to, to do things and we'll, uh, we'll, we'll, we'll get through there. So, okay. Okay. No, they will not have covered the Sauron defeated stuff in the Amazon series by the time we get there. That is the purest hyperbole. (laughs) Um, yeah, cool. Cool. All right. Hey, you look, Brianna's doing all this Arthurian stuff. That's very cool. You're reading, rereading Once in Future King with a friend this summer? Yeah, that's excellent. Very good. Okay. All right. So that is the announcement. So again, I recommend if you're, if you're ordering a book, this is the one. Eugene Vinaver, V-I-N-A-V-E-R. Uh, is the editor. Uh, this is the Oxford University Press. This is the second edition that I'm holding. Um, I don't think there's a third edition yet, though I'm old enough that sometimes that happens. Um, 
you know, that thing that I still consider the hot new edition is now like, you know, they're like on the fourth edition by now or something. But anyway, uh, this, this again, easy to acquire and, uh, like it's selling on Amazon for 23 bucks. So there you go. Um, uh, so this is the one, uh, that I'm going to be using myself, uh, uh, in class. This is also nice because, uh, in addition, it has, uh, uh, on, on each page, it has line numbers as well as page numbers. So it makes it easier to, uh, find stuff and everything. It's pretty cool. Um, 14 bucks used. See, there you go. Bargain, Craig bargain. Um, okay. So excellent. Oh, and Takako, you're going to love this, right? Nothing better, nothing better for a, a, an English as a second language person than immersing yourself in some middle English. Um, I'm being a little bit sarcastic about that. It's probably going to confuse you deeply, but it, it'll be a broadening experience. <laughs> Definitely a broadening experience. Um, okay. All right. Cool. Oh, I see there. I see that they're trying to post the link to it in Twitch chat, and Moobot is uh, is is beating on them. That's sad. Um, <laughs> I'm sure Druid's Fire can help you out there. Um, okay, all right. Um, good, good. Okay, all right. Um, so that is. Um, Oh, awesome, Rachel. So you, you, you've not really done any Arthurian reading? Well, Mallory's a, Mallory's a great place to start. Mallory, of course, is very far from the beginning uh, of Arthurian, of the Arthurian tradition. Um, but Mallory is really uh, sort of the nexus point, really. I mean, uh, he, is, he sets out to be this, like, summa of all the Arthurian tradition. You know, he's like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tell the, like, the, I'm going to bring together all the Arthur stories and tell, like, the biggest, fattest, most uh, authoritative version of the Arthur story. So he really sets out to kind of compile all the medieval stories. So there's a lot of the earlier stuff uh, that, uh, that gets put into Mallory. And, of course, Mallory is the one that pretty much everybody who tells the Arthurian story after this comes back to. So Mallory is really kind of the root text for almost all modern uh, treatment of uh, of of the Arthur story, and he is self-consciously the kind of, you know, he sees himself as sort of the capstone of the uh, medieval tellings of it. So for, for this way, uh, I think Mallory's an awesome place to start. Then you can, you can move forward, you can move back, but uh, it's a really wonderful foundation for Arthurian stuff. Um, but, um, anyway, yeah, a, a, a couple of years, I say you, you want to do films. Like you totally don't want to finish talking about Sir Thomas Mallory until we, uh, until like, you know, next December, right? December, 2019. Um, cause there are a lot of Arthurian films we could do. Uh, I, you know, I'm, uh, kind of, uh, tempted. We'll see. Uh, we'll see. <laughs> we'll see. <laughs> <laughs> no promises. No pro. I mean, I love doing the films. You know, I love doing the films. And actually, uh, there are a bunch of Arthurian films that I really enjoyed talking about. Um, but um, anyway, yeah, it'll be good. Um, yeah. Uh, yeah, several of you have mentioned Excalibur. It's a classic, <laughs> no question. It's a classic. Um, fortunately, that guy did Excalibur instead of doing the Lord of the Rings film that he wanted to do. Cause that would have been horrible. Um, but anyway, um, so, okay. All right. Uh, yeah. Tom, absolutely. I mean, there's no question. I mean, I, I didn't even think that needed discussion, right? You know, like what is the most, what, what is the best Arthurian film ever made? Right. 
please. Right? It's not, I mean, Excalibur is an interesting film, but it's not Excalibur, right? Uh, the best Arthurian film ever made is obviously uh, Monty Python and the Holy Grail. Uh, so there it is. Um, anyway, okay. All right. But let us go on and complete The War of the Ring now that we have had our little foretaste of what is to come, uh, and you can tell everybody and get excited, uh, and this is going to be a fantastic project and uh, a real, I mean, really kind of breaking new ground for us, which I'm really excited about. Um, but uh, we also do have this other book to finish, and it's happening tonight uh, because I'm not putting it off any longer. Uh, and anyway, it's totally doable, so let's do it. All right, end of the War of the Ring. So we start off with, I said, I just had a, a couple scattered notes from the Battle of Pelennor Field that I wanted to finish up on after we were looking at that really incredible scene with Eowyn and, you know, that, like, Eowyn triumphant scene, right? Um, and the death of the witch king, or wizard king, excuse me, um, as Nazgul, right? And the whole, like, the decapitation of the beast, which seems to lead to the death of the... Um, to the death of the the wizard king and exactly Karita Eowyn in uh, in boss mode that was exactly that was exactly what we saw last time okay a few scattered notes here um, long sojourn of rest in Minas Tirith and coming of Finduilus written above and Galadriel now Finduilus of course is as everybody knows the name of Elrond's daughter um, and this is kind of tricky because. Uh, it makes me wonder what that implies. Um, you're a half-elf. Do you name your kids after people, or you don't? You're Elrond, I think you don't, right? I mean, you know, we know this is a thing. Elves don't name people after dead people because there are no dead people right? When you're an elf. So, um, you know, you name somebody after grandpa, then like sooner or later, he's going to meet grandpa and it's going to be awkward. So, uh, they, they don't, they don't, they don't do that. Um, in, uh, uh, in, in, uh, elvish culture. But of course, as we've seen, especially in Gondor, they do it all the time, right? Like, you know, there are Silmarillion names everywhere in Gondor and those are not recyclings. Those are, those are deliberate, like, you know, Hurin of the Keys is named after Hurin Thalion, and Thalion, the father of the kid whose name I have forgotten now, who is not Burgil, um, uh, but the, you know the 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 forerunner of Burgil. Uh, his his name is Thalion, right? So we've got a Hurin, we've got a Thalion, we've got we've got a Turin, we've got a Turambar, we've got everybody, right? Everybody is is uh, you know not to mention uh, you know Mablung and everybody else. Um, so Finduilus. Either A, she's named after Finduilus. Now, so everybody remembers who Finduilus was, right? Finduilus is the daughter of, of Oradreth. She was the one who falls in love with Turin of, uh, from Gondolin, right? She falls in love with Turin Turinbar, um, and she's the one whose life he fails to save, and if he had saved her life, he could possibly have averted his doom, uh, but she doesn't. Exactly. Elf maiden pinned to tree by orcs. You've got it. Um, so Finduilus is, uh, um, so either Elrond has named his daughter after Finduilus, the daughter of Oradreth, or Tolkien is saying he's going to name, he's going to use the name Finduilus 
for the daughter of Elrond, and he's gonna like retroactively rename Turin's unreciprocated girlfriend something else, right? Um, and I don't really uh, uh, know. Now, Julie, that's a great question. Where was Fendulus at this time fully formed? In fact, the fullest version of Fendulus's part of the uh, story that is ever told has already been written. Um, uh, in the uh, So the f- first version, yes, the first version of the alliterative lay of the children of Hurin which Tolkien started writing way back, like in the late teens, early 20s. Um, uh, th- that went through, uh, g- got a little past Fenduilus, uh, got into uh, Nargathron, but not quite to the destruction of Nargathron by the dragon, as I'm recalling. Um, so the story of Fenduilus and her unrequited love for Turin and everything, it's, it is more fully developed in that version of the story, in the first uh, the first draft of the uh, of the unpublished, of course, in his lifetime, um, alliterative lay of the children of Hurin. That's the fullest version of the Fenduilus story that we get anywhere else, right? The version that we get in Unfinished Tales is the second longest one, um, but the one in the poem is even long, is, is even more. So the story of Fenduilus, the character, the Silmarillion character, has already received in, at, by, long since, like decades ago. Um, it's uh, it's it's largest writing, so it totally exists, right? So if he decides to take the name Fenduilus and give it to Elrond's daughter, then that's going to re- involve a lot of revision. Now he's shown himself willing to do this before. Also remember that he uh, um, also remember that he um, uh, uh, he's done it before, right? I mean, he painted himself into a corner with Glorfindel. Um, uh, Glorfindel, you may recall, if you did the Return of the Shadow with me, Glorfindel came in right on the cusp, like immediately as he had made the step, right? Had taken the step, taken the firewall down and decided, oh my goodness, this is going to be so much cooler if this little story I'm writing is actually contiguous with the Silmarillion tradition, right? If I, if I just, if I make these one big uh, story, um, that is going to be the coolest thing ever. Glorfindel happens like literally pages after that. Like he's writing notes, projecting what happens, and Glorfindel comes up, and Glorfindel's name is used there. And it's still a little doubtful: is he recycling the Glorfindel concept? Still, is he still like kind of in the is sort of like is that still in the pattern that he's in, and he hasn't fully broken himself of the habit of recycling, which he'd been doing throughout the Hobbit? Um, or has he made a decision? I mean, he doesn't actually make the concrete decision to say, okay, yes. Glorfindel of Rivendell is the same Glorfindel that was killed by the Balrog, and he just came back to Middle-earth, and I'm going to find a mechanism to bring him back, because it's the same dude. He does make that decision, and he, uh, 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 but he doesn't make that final decision on Glorfindel until, like, I don't know, what, five years before, in the five years before his death, uh, Tolkien's death, I mean, um, so that's, we'll get to that, I think, in Volume 12 uh, of the History of Middle-earth, so, um, anyway, uh, but the point is, he's shown himself willing to do this kind of thing. It's very clear he loves Fenduilus and he loves the name Fenduilus. You may recall he is going in the end to kind of have it both ways, right? He's not, of course, going to name the daughter of Elrond Fenduilus, um, but he's still going to name somebody Fenduilus. Do you remember uh, who Fenduilus is? 
she still she still comes in, right? She still she still makes the cut, even though she's not the daughter of Elrond. Exactly, James, you got it. Yeah, Denethor's wife, Faramir's mom. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. Um, so, um, but, but that, of course, that's totally kosher, right? You know, when you've got uh, again, th- then you just get she's a Gondorian woman who is named after Fenduela. So that 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 becomes straightforward at that point. But anyway. So, all right. Um, Forgetting the name then for a second. The daughter of Elrond. Wow. Is coming to Minas Tirith. That's interesting. Yeah. And Galadriel is coming with her, I guess. Won't that be fun? I wonder if there's anything interesting. I wonder if she's coming for any particular reason. that'd That'd be good to know, right? There's been no reference to this yet. I'll come back to this in a second. I have a complaint. I need to do some grutching. Um, by the way, it's one of my favorite Middle English words. Uh, uh, it's a Chaucer word. To, uh, grutch. G-R-U-T-C-H. Uh, to grutch means to complain. I love the word grutch because it's almost onomatopoetic. Uh, um, and uh, I, a couple of my students a few years back actually made me a sign for my desk that says no grutching. Um, but anyway... Um, yeah, yeah. It's like kvetch, uh, Arthur, yeah. Very, very similar to kvetch, uh, the Yiddish word. Um, but I like grutch even better. Grutch seems to me even more uh, onomatopoetic than kvetch, uh, personally. But um, Jennifer, I don't know for sure, but I would be very surprised if grouch is not from the same root. Uh, I, 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 I don't know for sure, but again, it would kind of shock me if it weren't. Anyway, okay, all right, all right. We'll come back to... Finduilus later on, daughter of Elrond, in a few minutes. So, hobbits all go home via Rohan, funeral of Theoden, and then through Gap and up west of Misty Mountains to Rivendell and then home. Yes, said Sam as he closed the book, that all happened a long time ago. Now, that would, remember, these are just like sort of scattered notes that he's, uh, that he's, that he's writing here, right? And, uh, so you can see, you know, as so often happens, this sort of bits of dialogue just kind of floating up in his brain as he's writing, right? Remember that he was not going to, the way that he was going to get out of writing book six, right? The plan is that he's going to get to the end of book five and then he's going to, um, he's going to do the end briefly, right? He's not going to write the whole thing. He's just going to, um, He's just going to say, like, they came home, and then he's going to have Sam close the book. He was going to end the book with Sam uh, and his, like, kids and grandkids, right? You know, so he's going to be, you know, Elder Gamgee reading out of the Red Book. So he closes the book, and he's like, that happened a long time ago. And then his kids were going to ask questions, like, you know, oh, but, Dad, what happened to, you know, like, what happened to Faramir? You know, what? and then he was going to answer the questions, right, in order to kind of, and so that was Tolkien's original plan, as you may remember, for the end of the book. So I love that we can see that bit of uh, future Sam dialogue uh, um, uh, uh, bubbling up through. Aragorn will only enter as Lord of the Forod, not as King. Lords ride in and see Theoden lying in state. Where is Gandalf? He comes in late or later and tells of Theoden's fall and Yoreth's words. They go to Houses of Healing and Aragorn asks for Athalas. He heals the sick. Yoreth says he must be king. After supper, he heals many sick. Council next day. 
Gandalf's advice. Merry wakes up feeling nearly well. While council is is on, perhaps, Gimli, Legolas, and Pippin talk. They do something or other, and hear of the love of Eowyn for Aragorn at Dunharrow, and of the great ride to Pelargir. The lords ride east. One thousand Rohirrim, Dol Amroth, and so on, perhaps. And a first force to hold Morgul. They ride into shadow of ambush. Peril! <laughs> Let's go back in there and face the peril. Um, okay. So, uh, right. We can see things beginning to take shape. I, lo- I love the way some of these things come out. Uh, possibly my favorite line here is, Yorth says he must be king, right? Um, uh, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, I don't know, I'm not sure if they're getting just a little bit of the peril down there or if they're really. Yeah, I think I think he's taking them single handedly. Um, Anyhow, um, let me emphasize, though, that many of these other things we're going to we're going to be talking about a little bit more. I want to focus on Eowyn here, Eowyn and Finduilas, right? They hear of the love of Eowyn for Aragorn at Dunharrow. That happened? When did that happen? Here's my complaint. I have a complaint to lodge. Now, I don't think I've done this yet. Um, I've disagreed sometimes with Christopher, right? Uh, usually deferentially, uh, uh, almost always tentatively. Okay, no, sometimes not tentatively, but many times tentatively I've disagreed with him. Um, but I, uh, I very much try not to complain about something. But this is my first complaint, I think, in the whole history. Okay, maybe it's probably not the first, but it's the first one that I remember. I've forgotten the rest if I've made others. What's the deal with the with his complete omission of talking about the development of the Eowyn uh, Aragorn love story? I mean, we get nothing on that Eowyn. I mean, apart from the fact that she remember all, all along, right? Every passage we've got about Eowyn has been like kills the witch king and dies, kills the witch king and dies, right? And we saw like she was the initial love interest, right? And then we moved away from that, and then she's like, you know, shield maiden, gonna kill the wizard king and die. I keep calling him the witch king, which I probably shouldn't do, but okay. So fine, like that's that's I, you know. He said nothing else about this. And now all of a sudden we find out, wait, okay, so now she's, I've been waiting, right? As we've been going through, I'm like, wait, so where's the bit? It's been forever since I've read this. I'm like, where, where's the bit where we find out about how she was actually like, has this unrequited love for Aragorn and that leads her to despair? Oh, okay, wait, I guess it's, oh, happening now already. So it's been happening and we just weren't told. That when did it start happening? So now I got to go back and I'm like, okay, so now I remember that Eowyn, there was a point where Eowyn was in despair. You remember she was like, hey, Theoden, you should bring the shield maidens and I'll like, I'll, I'll rustle up sh- some shield maidens and we'll come with you. And he's like, that sounds great. So she goes with him openly from the muster uh, down to, uh, to, to Minas Tirith originally. Right. And then there's another there are more a couple other versions where she's still going openly and not in disguise. And now all of a sudden she's in disguise. And almost as soon as she's in disguise, she becomes Durnhelm. Right. And she becomes like seeking for she becomes Faye seeking after death. Right. Um, 
I now have to guess that the unrequited love story with Aragorn has worked its way back in there, but he's given us nothing. Christopher Tolkien has given us no indication of when and how that story grew. I, and I get that, like, he can't include every bit of every text. But that kind of seems to me important, <laughs> you know? Like, that's an important thread of the story. Um, and yes, like, whether or not she survives... Uh, killing the Wizard King, or whether or not the Wizard King survives being killed by Eowyn, as we saw a couple weeks ago. Um, those are important. I'm not trying to say we should get less of that, but I, I would have wanted just some note, just a passing reference, maybe. You know, oh, and by the way, the Eowyn unrequited love uh, plot has uh, um, has popped in there. Okay. Uh, but anyway, so instead we have to guess. Um, but of course, we so we finally get the best we get, of course, is we get this final, this description of Eowyn's uh, grief. Right? You see, Boofal in Twitch is saying, you know, skip the kissing bits. That Boofal's exactly what I was thinking earlier today. When I was when I was prepping for class, I went back and I'm like, wait a second, what happened to the what? Because I, I came to this passage and I'm like, wait, 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 wait. What happened with the Eowyn story? And I was exactly, I was exactly thinking of the Princess Bride movie and being like, wait, wait Christopher, come on, how old are you? What are you like? Let's skip the kissing bits. Like, uh, come on. Uh, just anyway. Okay. End of complaint. So this is jumping forward a little bit. This is uh, from Legos and Gimli's uh, Paths of the Dead story. I think the Rohirrim believe, uh, sorry, well, this is Mary to begin with. I think the Rohirrim believe that inside there, that is inside the Dwimmer Barrack, dwell dead men, or their shadows, out of a past long before they came to that land. So they told us, said Legolas, and they forbade us to go in, but Aragorn could not be turned from it. He was in a grim mood, and that fair, uh, that, that fair lady that lies now in the houses below, Eowyn, wept at his going. Indeed, at the last... In the sight of all, she set her arms about him, imploring him not to take the road, and when he stood there unmoved, stern as stone, she humbled herself to kneel in the dust. It was a grievous sight. But do not think that he was not moved, said Gimli. Indeed, I think Aragorn himself was so deeply grieved that he went through all perils after that like a man that can feel little more. He raised her up and kissed her hand, and then without a word we set out, before the sun came over the black ridges of the mountain. I do not know how to put it into words, but even as we passed the last great standing stone, a dread fell on me, of what I could not say, and my blood seemed running cold. I lifted my feet like lead across the threshold of that darkling door, and hardly had we passed within when a blindness of very night came upon us. Um, yeah, um... Thinks this is really gossipy. <laughs> like, let's dish in the dirt here. Uh, yeah, yeah. Um, See, look, Legos and Gimli are mature enough to talk about this, right? And Tony says, is this a kissing book? Yeah, apparently we're, we're, we're concerned. Because see, now I'm going back to those earlier passages about when Aragorn first went to the Paths of the Dead, right after Tolkien figured out what was in the Dwimmerberg, right? And we had, the, like, we knew that Eowyn was resistant to the idea of his going in, but I would have loved to know if there was evidence from those early drafts that, like, what was the motivation? We kind of speculated about it a little bit at the time. Like, okay, she's not into his going to the Paths of the Dead. Is this because we've got the unrequited love story going on? And we don't know. Um, so, anyway. Uh, so that's my complaint. 
So where it exactly came in, we don't know, because Christopher didn't tell us. But it's clear that by this time, right, by the time we get to the to the to the 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 story of the Paths of the Dead uh, and the Battle of Pelennor Field, these later battles uh, battles of Pelennor Field. So I'm going to assume by the time we get the Durnhelm stuff with Eowyn, we are in the unrequited love story, right? Um, now, we don't have yet any indication of the resolution of that. Um, the ultimate matching of Eowyn and Faramir, we've seen no reference to it. But, you know... <laughs> <laughs> Maybe we're just skipping the kissing parts. How are we to know? Uh, but uh, anyway, um, uh, no, Lindsay, I don't think I don't have any reason to think that there was evidence that any of that stuff was left out. Uh, Lynn, it's just we don't know. Right. I mean, so much of these earlier drafts were just re- reliant upon Christopher to tell us, you know, he just like says these are the important bits. Right. Here are the particularly interesting parts of this particular draft. Um, and mostly I have found his um, you know, I, I find his uh, impression of what I'm going to find interesting fairly reliable. Uh, he and I are usually on on a on a on a fairly similar wavelength um, when it comes to what we find interesting. Sometimes he's a little more interested in the geography than I am, but I can forgive him that. Um, uh, well, okay, I I found that easier to forgive when I didn't realize that I was. Uh, uh, that that the extra discussion of chronology and geography was coming at the cost of the Eowyn and, and Aragorn story. But it's fine. <clears throat> I'm over it. So it's good. Um, <laughs> anyways, but, so it's here. It's here. When it came, we don't know. Um, again, I, um, I, I definitely do... Th- I mean... We have going looking back in retrospect and knowing that it's here now, and so it must have come in at some point. Uh, and uh, I, you know, I think that we have from that some circumstantial evidence. Uh, if I had to guess now, I would say the moment at which um, the moment at which it was uh, uh, it, it 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 became um, Durnhelm, right? She, when 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 she when when she uh, became despairing and seeking after death. I would guess that that's the point at which the unrequited love story uh, came in. Um, Now, Kevin, you're absolutely right. Kevin says, how do we know what we're missing? There might be lots more that Christopher left out. Yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah, no, they're totally... uh, That is is very likely. Um, And, you know, Kevin, I, I, I certainly think about that sometimes when I'm looking at a passage that he says is really interesting and then he comments on some things in it. And I'm like, yeah, I find it interesting, too. But not for the reason that you're like, OK, like your stuff is cool, too. But there are these other things that he doesn't emphasize at all, which happen to be in the passage that he said that I find very interesting. So, yeah. So this is why uh, doing archival work at Marquette is awesome. Uh, and it would be really fun to actually uh, be able to... Now, the downside to that is you have to uh, interpret Tolkien's handwriting yourself, which is a challenge. Uh, but um, but anyway, yeah. Um, it would be fun to have the unexpurgated uh, electronic version of Tolkien's uh, manuscript texts. Uh, that would be awesome. Um, uh, I would uh, I would support that. But we don't have it. Um, yeah. See, Brian, I, in retrospect, I would say that Eowyn's love for Aragorn was already implicit in how she reacts to Aragorn going on the paths of the dead, but it wasn't explicit, 
right? It didn't say that explicitly. It's not in the passages we were given. So I was hesitant at the time to to ascribe it to that, um, especially since it's, I mean, Amir is upset too, and he doesn't seem to have a, 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 you know, he, he, he doesn't seem to want to marry Aragorn. So, um, you know, like it seemed to me entirely possible that, or rather it didn't seem to me necessary to say that this proves, you know, that, uh, she's already, uh, crushing on him at that point, but it might, um, it might be, um, uh, but again, in retrospect, I think it very likely. But again, we don't know. We don't know. Um, uh, yeah, exactly, When It is quite possible that Eowyn is just creeped out by the paths of the dead and it's nothing to do with adoring Aragorn. Yeah, especially since, remember, Lynn, as you, I mean, exactly. Um, at that moment, right, Eowyn, when Aragorn comes to uh, Dunharrow by himself, well, not by himself, he's with the rest of them, but like not with, you know, so Theoden and Eowyn and everybody else, or Eomir are not there. Eowyn is, she's like the representative of the Rohirrim, right? So um, she is the instrument of expressing, like, the Rohirrim won't go into that, like, the, she, she is the voice of the cultural taboo, right? The Rohiric cultural taboo against entering the Dwimmerberg, right? If she's not going to be like, no, don't go in there, whatever you do, then how's he going to learn it? How are any of us going to learn it, right? Um, so when, so I, I agree, Lynn, it is, that's why I wasn't, it, I wasn't saying at the time, like, oh, well, that's a slam dunk, right? She's obviously, she's obviously into him because, that's an important role, right? For her to be saying, nobody goes into the, like, don't do it, man. Like you are, you're, you're, you're valuable. You're like a good, you're general and stuff. You, you're like a hero of the wars. Don't throw your life away. Um, doing this stupid forbidden thing. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, okay. Anyway. All right. Um, but, but I said, I'm going to stop complaining. So I'm going to stop complaining. Let's move on. Okay. I love this. Pippin meets Mary wandering half blind and witless, as in scene previously written, but humorous. Uh, sorry, but not humorous. Not humorous. Mary is also taken to Sickhouse. Faramir, Eowyn, Mary. King Theoden laid on beer in the hall of the tower covered with gold. His body is embalmed after the manner of Gondor. Long after, when the Rohirrim carried it back to Rohan and laid it in the mounds, it was said that he slept there in peace unchanged, clad in the cloth of gold of Gondor, save that his hair and beard still grew, but were golden, and a river of gold would at times flow from Theoden's howe. Also a voice would be heard crying, Arise, arise, riders of Theoden, fell deeds awake, forth Eorlingas, when peril threatened. Okay. Yeah, Nancy, this is that's exactly the mode that we are in here. Nancy says, is Theoden a saint or something? This sounds exactly like a medieval saint's life. This is just the kind of thing. Uh, in fact, Nancy, I was uh, I was this close before I before I, I uh, 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 thought of my funny pun. Uh, I was this close to having the subtitle of this slide uh, be. Uh, you know, the, the canonization of, or like, uh, you know, uh, Theoden up for canonization, because this is exactly the kind of manifestation of supernatural uh, miracles around the burying place of a dead person, which tends to have them nominated for sainthood fairly quickly. Um, but, um, so yeah, Nancy, I was interested that we got that kind of angle on that, right? Um 
But of course, remember, this is something we've seen before. Uh, recall that we saw something similar with Thorin, Oakenshield, right? Um, as, you know, the uh, 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 Orchrist, which lies upon him, uh, uh, shines whenever enemies approach, right? So not just the physical proximity of, uh, of goblins to Orchrist itself, uh, but whenever the mountain is threatened, uh, the, uh, a spirit, uh, supernatural warning, right, is given to his people. Um, so Theoden does something, uh, does something, does something similar. Um, Veronica, yeah, uh, Helm is a really uh, interesting other example, right? Now, with Helm, we don't get the same... It's not exactly the same as with Helm, what we get are legends of him. He he gets a mysterious death. It's well, not exactly mysterious, sort of mysterious. Um, we get these, you know, remarkable legends of Helm, but we don't get post-mortem supernatural manifestations with Helm, right? Um, unless you want to count the 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 horns in the deep. I think that's probably what you're referring to. So yeah, to, to some extent, uh, we get a similar kind of thing. It's not spontaneous with Helm, right? You know, so like the... It, it, it's not like a car alarm for Helm's deep, right? Enemies come in and the horns pick up. It's, it's rather the horns... A horn that is sounded is taken up. So it's the echoes in the deep sort of supernaturally uh, magnified, right? Uh, whereas with Theoden, his voice will cry out, uh, you know, the early warning alarm um, uh, when peril threatens, which is pretty cool. Um, and uh, um, the, the gold is fascinating. Okay, so we get the two things which seem to be connected, right? Um, the fact that... So, okay, oh, three things. Technically, His body doesn't decay, right? So Theoden's body remains uncorrupt in his tomb, which is already kind of a big deal, right? Um, and his hair and beard continue to grow. Like, indefinitely? Did they... Did somebody have to go and give Theoden's corpse a haircut regularly? Do you have to hike a hire a special post-mortem barber? Not that much call for that, right? But anyway, like a special, a special <laughs> necro barber, <laughs> right? Who has to go and cut Theoden's Because if he's uncorrupt there in his tomb, that means presumably people can see, right? So is that like a tourist attraction? The, the, um, the... the <laughs> no, I'm not. I'm not just making jokes, creative. No, I'm. I'm. I'm getting there. Cause see, this would mean then that you could actually like. I'd think that then the 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 the. Cause see, I'm thinking, uh, Nancy. I'm thinking in like medieval saints' lives terms, right? Cause you know what would happen, right? If this, I mean, there's no question what would happen here, right? Is that we would go, we would cut Theoden's hair and beard, and then the hair clippings of Theoden would become relics, right? Um, no question. But then, then. The river of gold flows from Theoden's how, right? And of course, if you're not thinking of Thorin now, I can't help you, right? So, okay, so a river of gold would sometimes flow from Theoden's how. So the and and the the link obviously between the ever growing hair and beard of Theoden and the uh, the river flowing out is the col- is the color, right? The the goldness of them. Now, why emphasize gold? And that is. Um, 
his youth, right? The restoration of his youth. So uh, what that is kind of commemorating, recalling, sort of uh, perpetuating the memory of is the healing of Theoden, right? The rejuvenation of Theoden, um, how his, uh, well, vigor at least, if not actual youth, uh, is restored uh, in his age uh, through the agency of Gandalf, uh, and he arises from his apparent decrepitude, right? Um, Yes, it's always a good day when you get to use the word decrepitude. Uh, He arises from his apparent decrepitude uh, and goes off to war and dies heroically and valiantly and everything. So, I mean, that's uh, so the the youth, the goldenness of the hair and beard uh, would clearly be a recollection of that. That would be that would be uh, um, kind of like the point. Right. Um, Because the river of gold, of course, you know, the river of gold, I'm thinking obviously of the, you know, the, 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 the river, uh, uh, shall flow, uh, with gold when the king under the mountain returns in the Hobbit. But this is different, right? I, I, I don't think, I don't think this is a wealth issue necessarily. I mean, maybe, maybe it's a wealth thing. And I don't even know what a river of gold means. A river of gold would at times flow from Theoden's house. A river whose water happened to be gold, like the river in Mirkwood was black? A river, like, actual gold, what, coins? Minted coins? Raw nuggets of gold flowing out? I can't imagine that it's actual chunks of gold metal just pouring out of Theoden's tomb. I mean, that seems like... A little too much of a good thing for one thing, but uh, and also it doesn't fit. It doesn't work. Like I said, the the preservation of his body, the perpetual growth of his uh, youthly golden beard and hair, that all kind of fits, right? It fits. Um, it conveys a coherent message, right, to the posterity of Rohan. Um, like and sometimes treasure comes pouring out does not seem to me to coherently fit with anything um, that we get in there. Obviously, it's very much within the idiom of the king under the mountain, right? Um, but it's not uh, uh, not really within the idiom of the king of Rohan. Now we do get the ring giver thing, right? We do get that. Like that's all. Like it's it's. Uh, you know, gifts proceed from the king and stuff. So it's not like gold is not in any way associated with uh, the king of Rohan, but I still just, I don't, um, I don't really, um, I don't really, I'm not feeling it. I don't see it. In which case, if it's not actually gold metal flowing in some sense, presumably not molten and uh, like scorching everybody, um, uh then it would be, again, a vision only? Or, again, like liquid, which is golden and therefore symbolic, right? So it's a symbol. That would fit. Like, a symbolic thing is exactly the kind of thing that I would sort of expect to happen. Um, a purely symbolic visual manifestation would be in keeping, right? Um, you know, what kind of message would that send? Um I'm not... Re- oh, Katriana, that's it. You've got it, Katriana. Of course, yes. The river of gold flowing out recalls the sunlight that breaks when the darkness flees uh, before him at Battle of Pelennor Field. Yeah, got it. You got it. That's it. That's it. Um, uh, the sunlight. Yeah, 
Mm-hmm. I think it's got to be sunlight there. Um, so, uh, yeah, no, it's not golden beer flowing out of the be- the beer thing. It's just a pun. It's not actually, and I know, Yana, it's exactly the same spelling, even in Dutch. I know, I know, but um, but yeah, no, it's not. It's not beer. It's it's not beer. Though, admittedly, a river of beer flowing out of his tomb would be more in the idiom, right? Like, I could believe that sooner than I could believe gold nuggets rolling out of his tomb. Uh, that that I could that I could believe. Um, but I still, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not, uh, I'm not convinced. Um, I'm not convinced. Anyway, okay. So, of course, this is going to be short-lived, though not instantly, not instantly discarded, right? Um, we do get a second version of this, uh, the Theoden's How stuff. Um, so, you know, uh, it, obviously it's not just a fleeting idea that Tolkien had, though, of course, it is going to ultimately get cut. But, of course, you could argue it's one of those things that doesn't get included explicitly in the text, but that doesn't mean conceptually it's it's been cut out, right? So you can, if you want to imagine a river of beer fly, flowing from the tomb of Thad in, in perpetuity, you can do that, right? <laughs> it, it's fine. It's fine. I'm not going to judge you. Um, yeah. Okay. All right. Let's keep going. Gandalf's puzzling comment to me. Um, Speaking of Mary, of course. He should have been born in honor into this city, he said. Greater was the wisdom of Elrond than mine. For if I had had my way, neither neither you nor he, Pippin, would have set out. And then far more grievous would the evils of this day have been. Faramir and Eowyn would be dead, and the Black Captain would be abroad to work ruin on all hope. Um, uh, okay, so someone is misremembering here, right? And it's either Gandalf or Tolkien is misremembering, because, of course, as Christopher reminds us, um, uh, uh, in the Council of Elrond, it was Gandalf who supported Merry and Pippin coming, and Elrond who wanted to send them home and was particularly opposed uh, to their coming along with the party. Um, and I, of course, remembered that right away just because I love this passage in the published text because Gandalf seems, in the published text, Gandalf seems never to miss an opportunity of uh, uh, sort of, uh, you know, doing a a distant, uh, I told you so to Elrond, right? I mean, he, he, he is almost intolerably smug about the fact that he was right. And Elrond was wrong, uh, on this point. He goes out of his way to bring it up a couple times, uh, in the published text. Uh, so it was, uh, it was just really funny to me to notice that the first time it happened, Gandalf's very first opportunity uh, to brag at his own cleverness, right, and uh, point out that he was right and Elrond was wrong, he G- Gandalf messed it up, right? Gandalf instead uh, got it backwards. And uh, so Gandalf's first impulse was to be humble, right? And then Tolkien revises it uh, and makes him uh, sort of uh, uh, amusingly smug. So uh, that was that was that that was good. All right. Uh, I now want to look at two longer sequences. First, the development of the Paths of the Dead 
story. I'm not going to worry too much about the placement. Of course, it originally emerged as a story told by Legolas and Gimli to Merry and Pippin in the Houses of Healing. Uh, and then, of course, he decides, you'll recall, at the time we didn't get the Passing of the Great Company chapter at all. Um, that was just kind of shoehorned into the Muster of Rohan chapter. And uh, so now the, the decision to go back and, and create the Passing of the Great Company and to shift a lot of this narrative, um, both from this point to that earlier chapter, and also to take it out of first-person narrative by Legolas and Gimli, much of it, uh, and, uh, you know, put it into the frame of the narrator uh, is something that comes in the later stages here. Uh, so the frame of the story is them meeting up in the Houses of Healing. And I really liked this, uh, uh, the tone of this. We haven't gotten too much of this tone uh, in the latter parts of this story. Um Legos is talking about the gulls, and, uh, and no peace shall I have again in Middle-earth. Say not so, said Gimli. There are countless things still to see there, and great work to be done. But if all the fair folk, and th- that are also... Uh, if, but if all the fair folk that are also wise take to the havens, it will become a duller world for those that are doomed to stay. It is already rather dull, said Merry, sitting and swinging his legs as he sat on the brink of the wall. At least it is for hobbits, cooped up in a stone city and troubled with wars, while their visitors talk and not and not together about their strange journey and tell no one else about it. I saw you at the Hornburg, but then I thought you were going to Dunharrow, but you come on ships out of the south. How did you do it? Yes, do tell us, said Pippin. I tried Aragorn, but he was too full of troubles and just smiled. First of all, uh, remarkable that Aragorn's reaction is to is to smile. James is just saying the same thing. James Oakley says, "When I'm too full of troubles, I just smile." Yeah, uh, that's that's a it's a fascinating uh, reaction there. Um, but he was too full of troubles and just smiled. But at, you know, in the end, I think that we don't um, we don't need too much explanation, really. Why did he smile? Who is he talking to, right? Uh, It's not his troubles that are making him smile. It's Pippin that's making him smile, right? Um, When Pippin says, I tried Aragorn, I suspect that he tried Aragorn uh, in a very similar way to how Merry is trying Legolas and Gimli right now, right? Um... (laughs) <laughs> but I just love that transition uh, from this, you know, very sort of uh, sort of high and wistful uh, uh, comment by Gimli, just, you know, redolent with the loss and grief that is, you know, intrinsic to Middle Earth. It will become a duller world for those that are doomed to stay. And to see Mary seize on that and, you know, just kind of turn it into a joke. It's already rather dull, at least for us, right? While their visitors talk and not together about their strange journey and tell no one else about it. Um, it's awesome. So, yeah, I, I, uh, um, I think that it's... Uh, uh, we can see, I suspect in both passages, not only the actual... Um, uh, you know, humor of Mary here and, you know, in his uh, lighthearted hobbitry. But Pippin's testimony of Aragorn's smile seems to suggest, like, and this is, this is one of the things that they do, right? Um, and I think that that's really, uh, um, I think that that's really 
fun. Um, okay, but Paths of the Dead. Okay, going back now to the uh, the earlier versions of what. So, going into the Dwimmer, into the Dwimmerberg, that there are dead men who are oathbreakers there, and that they need to fulfill their oath. Remember, we got there. We finally got there in the prophecies earlier on. Um, the prophecies, instead of being like the three lords, elf, human, and dwarf, shall come down. And this is why Legos and Gimli were really important because they had to be there to fulfill the prophecy. We got the the prophecy. Finally, talks about the oathbreakers, and so we had gotten there. But what actually happened had been less clear, so we're trying to iron that out. Aragorn takes Paths of the Dead, morning of 8 March, passes Tunnels of Mountains. This tale will have to be told in brief later, probably at Feast of Victory in Minas Tirith, by Gimli and or Legolas. They see skeleton and armor of Baaldor, son of Brego. But except for, a dark and a f- except for dark and a feeling of dread, meet no evil. The tunnels become the issuing caverns of Morthond, that is the river. It is dusk, changed to afternoon, of 8 March, when Aragorn and his company come out into the uplands at the, heads of the, at the head of the Vale of Morthond and ride to the Stone of Erech. This was a black stone, according to legend brought from Numenor, set up to mark the meeting place of Isildur and Anarion with the last king of the Dark Men of the Mountains, who swore allegiance to the sons of Elendil, vowing to aid them and their kin forever, even though death should take us. That was a rash vow. The stone was enclosed in a now-ruined tower, and there had been kept, and there had been kept one of the Palantiri. No men went near the tower. Rumor of terror flies through the vales, for the king of the dead has come back, and beheld behind the living men a great host of shadow men, some riding, some striding, but all moving like the wind are seen. Okay, so um, remember that the thing that which was to me most mind-blowing about those earlier Paths of the Dead passages was that the Stone of Erech was a palantir, right? And so, like, of course, of course... Isildur brought it out of Numenor, right? It's a palantir. You're not going to leave that behind, right? So uh, we see this is the kind of the transitional moment, which is really fun, right? So uh, the Stone of Erech was a palantir, and it's going to become just a, a rock in the ground, right? Which is like a commemorative rock is what it's going to become. Um, and in, But in this transitional stage... It's both, right? So we've got the Stone of Iraq, which is now no longer just a palantir. Now it's a big rock in the ground. Oh, but there's also a palantir there in the tower. So there was a tower, and one of the palantir is there, and there's this also this rock in the ground, which is commemorative of the vow. Because remember, we didn't have the vow before, right? The only point of going to Iraq, uh, originally, when they were, they, were, they were going to Iraq the whole time, when there were no oath breakers in the, in the bargain, right? Um... But the and the reason they were going to to Erech was to get the was to get the Palantir. Now they're going to meet the Oathbreakers. Oathbreakers are a big deal, so the stone becomes this commemorative thing to commemorate the vow. And uh notice that it seems that they doomed themselves. In fact, it's not obvious from this account right here that there are even oathbreakers, right? I mean, if anything, the coming to, uh, it's the keeping of their oath, right? They, they're the ones who swore the oath that they would keep on going, right, even though death should take us. So uh, they're lingering as unquiet spirits is not a product of their disobedience, right? Not a product of their breaking the vow, but rather it is 
the the keeping of their vow. Now, we've already had references to the Oathbreakers. Again, at the end of the earlier passages, we've seen that concept already come in, and I'm not suggesting that I've... It's not obvious to me that he's... Uh, it's not obvious to me that he's discarding that here, but it's not totally obvious that he's not yet either. At least in any case, the terms of the vow, which are quoted, right, specifically, um, at least seem to open the door to the possibility that they might not be breaking their oath, but rather just keeping it beyond all reasonable expectation, uh, in fact. But if that's the case, this is their high watermark, because they're going to get... Uh, less admirable after this. Aragorn goes to Arrak at midnight, blows horns, and dim shadow horns echo him, and unfurls banner. The star on it shines in the dark. He finds the Palantir, unsullied, buried in a vault. From Arrak he sets out, added dark, morn, of March 9, added at 5 a.m. I love the additions, right, uh, when he's working out the chronology. For, read from, Arrak to fords of La, of Lameduin, say Lynn here, is 175 miles direct, about 200 by road. Great terror and wonder preceded his march. At Lynn here on, on Lameduin, men of Lebenin and Lamadan are defending passage of river against Haradwife. Aragorn reaches Lynn here at evening on March 10 after two days and nights forced riding with host of shadow behind in the deepening dark of Mordor. All fly before him. Aragorn crosses Lameduin into, Le- into Lebenin at morning of March 11th and hastens to Pelargir, added 100 miles. Okay, so... Terror and wonder is preceding his march. Um, he blows the horns at Erech at midnight, and we get the, the, the shadow horns echoing him, and he unfurls his banner in a dramatic moment, which is actually dramatic uh, in this draft. Um, that always struck me as one of the most really interesting kind of path, uh, the, the moments in the published Return of the King at the end of the passing of the Great Company when they get to Erech, right? Um, <laughs> the published text says, you know, it was dark. Like, so they unfurled the banner and the banner opens and behold, exclamation point. It was dark and you couldn't really see it was black. Like you couldn't really see it. It doesn't say anything about it. Like we don't get a star, a star shining on it in the dark. It's like behold, it was black. And really you couldn't actually see anything. So like behold, the thing that you can't see is kind of how the narrator plays it uh, in uh, in the published text, which is slightly peculiar. Um, interesting to me that his original version has the shining star. So like it's this the the banner is luminous, right? I mean, it shines like you can read by this banner. I, I don't know if it's quite that bright, or maybe if you have good eyes. But anyway, it's actively luminous in the darkness. Um, and then he 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 takes that he takes that out. He 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 dials that back. Um, in the published text. Um, uh, Jennifer is um, asking if Aragorn is starting a Palantir collection. Yeah, sort of, but see, you, you see the point, though. It's unsullied. This is why he wants the, pal- the, the Palantir, because the Orthanc Stone is dangerous, right? I mean, like, that, that line is tapped, right? Um, but he can get an untapped line uh, from the Stone of Erech. I, I mean, that is the other stone, the portable stone, the seeing stone of Erech, not the big one, uh, big er one, not as big as it is in Lotro. Anyway, um, so I uh, that's the unsullied. That's how I take unsullied, and that seems to be the 
point uh, here. In fact, the adding of the word unsullied in parentheses there uh, in this outline seems to me uh, even meant for an explanation as to why he wants the Palantir. But you remember, that was the point all along. When he looks into the Palantir, what has he discovered? There are other Palantiri, right? And I'm going to go get me one. There's one at Iraq, and I'm, I'm there. Um, is there something that happens uh, if he... Uh, um, if he reunites all the Palantiri, Tony, I don't really know. Sorry, I'm laughing because I saw Boomful's comment. Uh, out of box, but still in good condition. Exactly, yeah, that's exactly this the Palantir of Iraq there. Um, so, uh, anyway, yeah, so um, the Palantir is going to be, I mean, that, that's going to drop out entirely the need for an unsullied Palantir. Uh, it's not, I mean, in fact, you'll notice the Palantiri are another thing that gets that get dialed back a lot, right? Um, we, uh, we he looks in it less often. There's not really any realistic chance of it blowing up in his face and killing him. Um, uh, Sauron doesn't even think about his own Palantir in the moment of his death, right? Gandalf doesn't brain anybody with one, so uh, the Palantiri are gonna play a lesser role as the revisions go on. Okay. All right. Now we're we're getting eucatastrophe on eucatastrophe. Aragorn crosses into Lebenin on March 11th morning and rides with all speed to Pelargir. The shadow host follows. The Haradrim fly before him in dismay. Some, hearing news of his coming in time, get their ships off and escape and escape down Anduin. But most are not manned. Uh, most of the ships, that is, presumably. Uh, early on 12th, Aragorn comes on the fleet, driving all before him. Many of the ships are stuffed with captives. Uh, and they are partly manned, especially the oars, by captives taken in raids on Gondor, or slave descendants of captives taken long before. These revolt. So Aragorn captures many ships and mans them, though several are burned. He works feverishly because he knows that doom of Minas Tirith is near if he does not come in time. The night the shadow host vanishes and goes back to the mountain valleys and finally disappears into the paths of the dead and is never seen again to come forth. There is no rest for the Oathbreakers, right? They're just going back to the Path of the Dead, and they're going to darn well stay there from now on. Um, notice also the Shadow Host is following. So what are they doing exactly? Right? They're scaring folks away. On the 12th, they're coming on the fleet and driving all before him, right? But, um, hang on. The Haradrim fly before him in dismay. That is, because, you know, dead folks. Um, some hearing news of his coming in time get on their ships, get their ships off and escape down the Anduin. So when Aragorn comes on the fleet, it's the fleet on the river, right? So they run away or sail away, right, on their ships, but some of their ships are not manned, so they leave some of their ships behind. So if I'm reading this correctly, Aragorn, Aragorn then gets into the boats, right, the abandoned boats, and pursues them, the ones that made it out, right, onto the river. So when we have, when he comes on them and drives all before him um, and saves, and the, and the captives revolt, this is happening, this is battle at sea, except it's on the river, right? Battle on river, boat to boat, battling. Um, question, I have question, on the, um, uh, are the dead folks there? No, dead folks, I don't know. Are they there? Um, I... He's still driving all before him. Are the dead folks in the boat-to-boat fighting here? Um, not 
really clear if that's um, um, if that's happening. No, so Stephen, he they're heading out towards sea, yes, but he catches them and then takes those boats and then they got to sail back up to to Minas Tirith. Yeah, yeah, they've got to they've got to they got to move. Um, okay, on morning of fifteenth, written above fourteen, a wind rises added at dawn and freshens from southwest. The cloud and gloom begins to roll back. They hoist sails and now go with struck out more speed. About nine a.m., they can be seen by watchers from Minas Tirith who are dismayed. As soon as Aragorn catches sight of the city and of the enemy, he hoists his standard, the white crown with the stars of the sun and moon on either hand, Oendil's badge. A sun gleam from the southeast lights it up, and it shines afar like white fire. Aragorn lands and drives off enemy. Okay, uh, first of all, notice Oendil's badge. White crown with stars of sun and moon on either hand. Makes sense, right? White crown in the middle, Frostgiliath, which is the capital, and then you've got the sun and moon, so it's, uh, you know, Minas Anor and Minas Ithil, right? So this is a this is a Gondorian symbol, Oendil's badge, right? Much more explicitly Gondorian, right, than later on. Um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Several people asking for one more week of class. No way, man. We're finishing. Okay. Next time we go back to Erech. But afterwards, in the days of Gondor's later power, men set a ring wall about the stone of Erech, and built beside it on the hilltop a tall dark tower, and there was guarded the seventh palantir, which is now lost. The tower is ruinous, and the ring wall is broken, and all about the land it is empty, for none will dwell near the hill of Erech, because it is said that at times the shadow men will gather there, thronging about the ruined wall and whispering. And though their tongue is now long forgotten, it is said that they cry, We are come. And they wish to fulfill the broken oath and be at rest, but the terror of the dead lies on that hill and the land about. Thither in the blackness before the storm we came, and at last we halted, and Eladon blew his silver horn, and Elrohir unfurled the banner that at the hornburg he bore still wrapped in grey, later black, and dark as it was, the stars glinted on it, and as it was spread on the wind like a breath of ghosts coming down from the mountains. Sorry, as it was spread on the wind like a breath of ghosts coming down from the mountains. Nothing could we see but the seven stars of Elendil, and yet we were aware of a great host gathered all about us upon the hill, and of the sound of answering horns, as if their echo came up out of deep caverns far away. But Aragorn stood by the banner and cried aloud, The hour is come at last, and the oath shall be fulfilled. I go to Pelargir, and ye shall come behind me, and when all this land is clean, return and be at peace, for I am Alessar, Isildur's heir of Gondor. Look, he's got it all his proper names. Um, okay, so... Notice the way that the story is being pitched now, right? Now, very, very clearly, Oathbreakers, right? There, you know, there's, there, there's no, like, their lingering is the fulfillment of their oath element uh, left here uh, anymore. But what we do get is their desire to fulfill their oath, right? The Oathbreakers have plainly learned their lesson, Right, um, and the idea that the area around Erech is avoided because haunted, right? 
the reason that it is haunted by not unquiet spirits who are, you know, harassing living people, um, but by the unquiet spirits who are just waiting for their opportunity to fill their oath, right? We are come, they say. We are come. They keep coming to the stone of Erech, where they were supposed to come, right? Uh, to rally and meet with Isildur and Anarion, and they didn't, right? And now they keep vainly attempting to fulfill their oath, which can't be fulfilled until the other side also comes, right? So now Aragorn's arrival, the return of the king, uh, it, you know, he is now in the place of Isildur and Anarion. Now we see him, um, you know, in the importance, obviously, of uh, uh, of that moment of his of his kingly status um, and the 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 element of destiny and prophecy and all those things coming together. Uh, I really I really like this. Okay, good. And we've got still shiny stars on the banner. That's good. Um, now you'll remember that very noticeably. At one point, so he's called the king of the dead. You know, they're like, oh, the king of the dead has come. The people of Lebanon are also calling him the Lord of the Ring. And they say the Lord of the Ring has come. Um, and Christopher, in his long note 34 at the end of this chapter, attempts to explain why on earth uh, Aragorn is being called the Lord of the Ring. Oh, Stephen, that's a great observation. Stephen says, uh, in this version, it's almost like Aragorn is the one summoned, right? Yeah. Now, of course, it's not exactly like he is the one, he's not being like, obviously conjured up by then, by them, but rather, I do like that the element of that that I think I like most is the fact that Aragorn coming to the Stone of Erech and blowing the horn and the dead coming, right? When the dead come back to Erech at the call of the king, then shall the prophecy be fulfilled, right? Um, but it still makes it sound like the agency of the fulfillment of the prophecy is, are, are the dead, right? Um, when they come to meet with the king, when they are called and they come, then, then you know it's time to fulfill the prophecy. Here, when them, with them just constantly showing up, right, it's clear that the agency of the fulfillment of the prophecy is Aragorn. Now, he's involved anyway in summoning them before, but, but it seems to me the emphasis is slightly different, Right? Um, anytime, anytime the king showed up, uh, it would, the, the prophecy would be fulfilled because they're just waiting. They're just waiting all the time, right? Come on, we're here, right? We're here, we're waiting for it to be fulfilled. So the moment he arrives, they're there, they've been there, right? Um, he's the one who fulfills the prophecy and I really like that. Um, okay, so anyway, but the, so they call him the Lord of the Ring. Why do they call him the Lord of the Ring, you ask? Uh, I ask, Christopher asks, and none of us know. So here's this passage that he gives us in the note, uh, which is certainly, as he says, a very intriguing passage. Indeed, all the folk of Lebanon call Aragorn that. I wonder why, said Mary. Mary doesn't know either. I suppose it is some device to draw the eyes of Mordor that way to Aragorn and keep them from Frodo. And he looked east and shuddered. Do you think all his great labor and deeds will be in vain and too late in the end, he said? Frodo's. I assume he means not Aragorn's. I know not, said Gimli, but one thing I know, and that is not for any device of policy would Aragorn set abroad a, fa- a false tale. Then either it is true, or he has that, and he has a ring, or it is a false tale invented by someone else. But Elroy here and Eladon have called him by that name, so it must be true. But what it means, we do not know. Okay, so 
He's called the Lord of the Ring. And here, Mary gives a perfectly palatable explanation of this phenomenon, right? Okay, so it's a stratagem. And it's the stratagem, you know, which is like the dominant stratagem that we're using here, right? Um, We want Sauron to think that Aragorn has the ring because then he's not going to pay any attention uh, to Frodo. So we want him to think that. So Aragorn's going to let people in the Benin calm the Lord of the Ring because then hopefully rumor of that will get back to Sauron and that would be a good thing, right? So, okay. Great explanation, Mary. Thanks for solving the problem. I think you've nailed it, Mary. That theory works brilliantly. But then here, Gimli totally shoots it down, right? No, 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 no. Aragorn would never spread abroad a false tale, not for any policy, right? Even if it were smart, he's not going to lie about something like that. So either somebody else invented it, or it's true. And Eladon and Elrog here call him that, so it's obviously true. So, he really is the Lord of the Ring. Okay. The question is, what ring? Now, um, in this note... Christopher explains that so in the in the draft where Aragorn is called the Lord of the Ring uh, by the folks of Lebenin, an S is added. So it as originally written, it says Aragorn, Lord of the Ring, uh, and then he adds you could in like a in different ink he adds an S, so it's Lord of the Rings, Aragorn, Lord of the Rings. Uh, so Christopher makes a shot at explaining this. There is nothing on this page of the draft, or indeed anywhere in the manuscript, that this can refer to, but the cry, the Lord of the Rings has arisen. That is like nothing that passage that we just read can refer to. I have found only one scrap of writing that seems to bear on this. That's Christopher's way of saying I have no idea what this means. Under the text, in ink, of a piece of rough drafting, that, refer, that referred to in Note 39, for the beginning of the story of the march from Minas Tirith, are a few furiously penciled lines parts of which can be read. Galadriel must give her ring to Aragorn. Whoa. Something to wed Finduilus. <laughs> Whoa! Hence his sudden access of power. Okay. Question mark. That won't work. It will leave Lorien defenseless. Also, Lord of the Ring will be too... something or other. <laughs> Man. How tantalizing is that? Um, uh, Okay. Um, Galadriel must give her ring to Aragorn? It's really hard to draw conclusions from this because we don't even get complete sentences. Right? So we get here concepts being raised and we don't really know exactly how they're being connected. So like, for instance, no idea what Aragorn having Galadriel's elf ring would have to do with him marrying Finduilas, right? Um, Can he only marry the elf girl if he has an elf ring? There's lots of precedent. Okay, not lots, but some precedent for that not being required, in fact. Um, But I don't really know. Uh, 
Yana says, is this the precursor to Kierden giving his ring to Gandalf? That seems quite possible. Now, that, no, there's not been any reference to Gandalf having a ring yet. We have no hint at Gandalf wielding a ring. Um, and Darren's wondering if it's if it's a dowry. Maybe it is a dowry, right? Um, I Is he going to give it to Fendulis? Why does she need one, right? I mean... Dad's already got one. Uh, but I don't know. Anyway, like I said, I have no clue what that has to do with his wedding. Um, to me, the most... Okay, I was about to say the most interesting thing. No, Galadriel giving a ring to Aragorn. That's pretty interesting. Um, but the, the, the interesting connection to me is the business about, hence, his sudden access of power, right? Um, Aragorn takes a pretty big leap forward, right? Um, you know, Trotter the Ranger has been a pretty cool guy all along. Um, but starting, you know, uh, starting at, well, really, especially in Book 5, when he meets the Rangers and then looks into the stone and rides the paths of the dead uh, and, you know, then comes and, like, starts healing folks and stuff like that, right? Uh, he's kind of moved to a different level, right? Um, and the interesting thing to me is that that Tolkien would even toy with the idea of giving a mechanical explanation for that access of power, right? Um, yes, he has grown as a character, right? Um, yes, he's become a much more central part of the story. He does much more. He's, this is not the guy they met in the inn at Bree, right? Even apart from the fact that he no longer wears wooden shoes. Um, this is not the guy. Even when he was human and a Dunedain, this is, this is a different guy, right? Um, and that Tolkien has the impulse to give this kind of an explanation, it's because he, he's got an elven ring now, right? Galadriel uh, gave it to him. That's really fascinating to me. Remember, but it's not unprecedented. He does this with the Nazgul, right? The Nazgul are no longer what they were, right? When we meet them again in Gondor in Book 5, they are way more powerful than they were in the Shire and Bree back in Book 1, Right? And he gives an explanation for that. When they return to Sauron, they get upgraded, right? He pours more of his spirit into them, so they are, in fact, different. And I find it absolutely fascinating um, that he almost gives Aragorn not a similar explanation in that the mechanics of it are similar, but the fact that it needs explanation, right? Um, that he felt that he almost gave it some explanation like that is... Um, is really interesting. And Brian, yes, Brian points out the the significant fact that his deciding against this is not because it diminishes Aragorn's character in some way, but because it would complicate the story of Lorien. Yeah. Um, it would leave Lorien defenseless, and that would be that would be difficult. Now, a couple of you have mentioned um what about the Ring of Bari here? He's got the Ring of Bari here, doesn't he? Um, maybe that's the ring of which he is the Lord, right? Um, 
and Christopher never ever mentions it. If we didn't have this scrap here about Galadriel giving her ring to Aragorn, then, I mean, I was thinking of the Ring of Bar here as well. Um, and again, if we didn't have this passage at all, that would seem to me the most obvious explanation. If Gimli is insisting that he must in fact be the Lord of a ring, right? The Ring of Bar here would be my number one um, candidate for what what ring uh, Aragorn would be the Lord of. Um, but that it would be a ring of power, actually, it, it really does make more sense. Um, I mean, yeah, he's got the Ring of Bari here, but, like, so what? It's, it's, not, it's not a thing to be master of, right? It's not a thing to be lord of. I mean, it's cool, it's an, it's an heirloom, but it's not, there's no power in it. Um, uh, well, Yana, I agree, in a sense, it might be important to the Oathbreakers, but it's an, in, it's an indirect sense, though. Um, there's no reference to the Ring of Bar here at all, uh, you know, during that whole time. So it's not like they, you know, had he shown up and they, and been like, I am LSR, the heir of Isildur. And they were like, show us your credentials. And he's like, well, I've got this ring. And they're like, well, okay, then we'll follow you. Then I'd be a hundred percent behind it. Right. But there's not a whiff of anything like that. Um, the ring gets no play whatsoever there. So, um, the ring of bar here, I mean. So, again, like, is that what they're thinking? Maybe, but I don't really... I don't think we can... Um, I agree that the ring of bar here is very logical, you know, to kind of... Uh, is a very logical suspect, but I don't see any support in the text. Um, any indicate, Any reason to believe that that's the ring that we're talking about. And Jennifer, exactly. The emphasis in the text is on the banner, right? He's got the banner and you know, the banner shining in the darkness and stuff. That's that seems to be the thing, um, not 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 his ring. No reference to that at all. Anyway, okay. So fascinating. Um, could it be, therefore, that this is still that when the in you know when he's going through Lebanon? Tolkien is still operating under the premise, or entertaining at least, the idea that he is wielding one of the Elvish rings at that time. Um, again, if it sounds crazy, remember, that is going to stick around, right? It's just going to be Gandalf, as, you know, yeah, Yana, I think you were suggesting. Um, the idea that we're going to get an Elvish ring handoff to a member, handoff to a member of the party, uh, that's going to stick. It's just going to be Gandalf, not Aragorn, and it's going to be Círdan, not Galadriel, because Galadriel still needs it, and Círdan doesn't. What's he doing with his? Right? Come on now. Right? Uh, it's, it's it's off on the sidelines over there. Galadriel is at least near the front lines. So, okay. Awesome. We're almost halfway through. That's great. Uh, I'm just kidding. Actually, I'm not. But we're good. Okay, so... I love this passage, that we got a future of Erech, right? One of those... Uh, narrative, uh, one of those narrators' um, uh, digressions, right? Telling us the future. 
really cool. And so ended the tale of Legolas and Gimli concerning the ride of Aragorn by the paths of the dead, which long was recalled and sung in Gondor in after days. And it was said that never again were the shadow men seen by mortal men on mountain or vale, and the road from Dunharrow was free to all who were willing to take that way. Yet few did so, for the memory of fear abode there still, and none ever dared to open Baldur's door. Confession. I was really kind of wishing that he had said to open Baldur's Gate there. I, 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 gotta, I gotta admit, I, I really, I was kind of disappointed. Anyway, okay, struck out immediately. A tomb they made for him in that dark place, and so built it that none could come at that door... The passage that I have bracketed was replaced probably at once by the following. But the stone of Erech stood ever alone, and on that hill no bird would alight nor beast feed, and the memory of fear still abode in the dark ways of Dunharrow, and few were willing to take that road, and none ever dared to open Baldur's door. Um, okay. So, uh, yeah, Tony, this absolutely sounds like a Findigil digression. I absolutely agree. Um, so... In later years, the Paths of the Dead becomes a little-used highway between... <laughs> it's, it, becomes a, it becomes a bypass, right? Uh, it's, like, it's like the big dig. Um, so, but, it, but people don't ever, don't ever use it, right? Um, so it's Erek, not the Paths of the Dead themselves, that still have this sort of numinous sense to them, right? Birds won't land there. Um, and the memory of fear still abides in the in the dark ways. Um, so the abiding mystery, yeah, no beast sounds a lot like Tall Brandir, absolutely. Um, uh, anyway, so the uh, the the abiding mystery is Balder, right? The last kind of um, uh, oh, weird glitch. Uh, the last um, uh, taboo thing, right? Uh, is the well sort of the stone at least for birds right and beasts but um the uh, the 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 tomb of Balder the last burying place of Balder okay but those dead guys you just can't rely on those dudes right I mean so they go from we're gonna remain faithful even after death to we're oathbreakers, but we are ready anytime we're like we are here, we're just waiting, we're ready to fulfill the oath anytime the king shows up, no matter how many thousands of years we have to wait. And but they keep they keep going downhill here. I soon forgot them. Uh, the gulls, not the dead guys, uh, for my part, said Gimli. For at last we came to a battle. The Haradrim were driven now to despair and could fly no longer. There at Pelargir lay the sheets of Umbar, fifty great ships and many smaller vessels beyond count. Some few of our enemies reached their ships and put off, seeking either to escape down the river or to reach the far shores, and some they set fire to. But we came too swiftly upon them for many to slip from us so. We were joined by some of the hardier folk of Lebenin and of the Aethir, but we were not many when the corsairs turned to bay, and seeing our weakness, their hearts revived, and they assaulted us in their turn. There was stern work there in the twilight by the grey waters, for the shadow host halted and wavered, unwilling at the last, as it seemed, to make war on Sauron. Then Aragorn let blow a horn and cried aloud, saying that if they broke their oath a second time... 
<laughs> he interrupts, right? If they, if, what was he going to do? If you break your oath the second time, so help me, right? I am turning this continent around. Um, I have no idea what Aragorn was going to threaten the dead guys with, right? Okay, You're, you may be doomed now to a perpetual purgatorial existence in the Dark Mountains, but things are going to get unpleasant, right, if you break your oath the second time, right? No more Mr. Nice King of Gondor, okay? Here my father stopped and rewrote the passage to a form not essentially different from that in The Return of the King, where the shadow host is still said to have hung back at the last, but with no explicit suggestion that they were reluctant to fill the oath, and where, for the living, there was no need for stern work in the twilight by the gray waters. He's wa- he wavers, of course, uh, you know, are the dead guys going to do all the fighting, or at least all the chasing away of bad guys or are they um are the living gonna fight battles too and he he kept going uh hither and yon but the the to me the the important thing here is that um is the 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 story of the oathbreakers right um them getting more and more reluctant and notice what that emphasizes, right? The emphasis becomes more and more on Aragorn, right? It is his will that keeps the dead to their mission. When it comes to it, they've answered his call. They're going to fulfill their oath. They're going to fulfill the prophecy, and yet they still drag their immaterial feet when it comes to it, right? That's really interesting. Um, And what's the consequence? Aragorn has to let blow a horn and and command them again. He's already called them together. They've already followed him, but they won't go into battle until his will holds them to it. Right. Uh, so it really continues to, uh, um, it really continues to elevate Aragorn's status. Notice again, his power, right? It's almost like he's got an elvish ring or something. Um, okay. Enough of the paths of the dead. Let's look at the last debate and then we're almost done. Okay. Council, read Council of the Lords. This is this is earlier on. This is a, a very early version of this. Gandalf warns them that what Denethor said is true. There was no final victory in arms against the enemy. We fought here as best we could because we had to, and it is so appointed in this world, uh, and it is so appointed in this world must be... Hmm. I think something must be missing here in this world, must be made to evil without final hope. Uh, I think I'm missing a word here. I'm not quite sure. But anyway, when we take arms to attack, we are using that power which is preeminently found in the ring, and it would be logical to do, as Denethor desired in that case, to use the ring. So indeed, we should probably now have victory and overthrow Sauron, but only to set up another so that, in the end, the result would be evil, if different, or possibly worse, as if Sauron recovered recovered the ring. Therefore have I something recovery in order that, for a great age, victory should be otherwise. But we must still use such power as we have, and not delay. Sauron must still be kept busy and deem we have the ring. From the beginning, the essential elements are there, Right? We cannot hope to fight against Sauron. The only way we can beat Sauron is with the ring. If we do, it's going to be worse than if we lose, so we might as well lose. We'd be better off losing than to win that way, right? Um, and so we can't hope to beat him, but so let's just 
distract him, right? Uh, and distract him by leading him actively to think that we do have the ring and we are getting ready to use it against him. So that's this is the core of the plan of the last uh, debate from the beginning uh, and will remain so. But the coolest part of this chapter, and not only the coolest part of the last debate chapter, but the coolest part of this book, in my opinion, uh, is the unexpurgated version of the the final, the last debate, right? When we get those same arguments um, in much more full detail. My lord, said Gandalf, go forth and fight. Vanity. You may triumph on the fields of Pelennor for a day, but against the power that now arises, there is no victory. So said the steward of this city before he died. And though I do not bring you counsels of despair, yet ponder the truth in this. The people of the West are diminished. Far and wide the lands lie empty, and it is long since your rule retreated and left the wild peoples to themselves, and they do not know you, and they will come seeking new lands to dwell in. Now ere... uh, Now... Ere it be a matter of war between men, such as has been for many ages... Now, were it but... Okay, right. Now, were it but a matter of war between men, such as has been for many ages, I would say you are now too few to march east, either in wrath or friendship, to subdue or to teach. Yet you might take thought together to make such boundaries and such forts and strongholds as as could long be maintained and restrain the gathering tide." change to wild, perhaps? But your war is not only against numbers and swords and spears and untamed peoples. You have an enemy of great power and malice, and he grows, and he it is that fills all the hearts uh, uh, the, all the hearts of the wild peoples with hate, and directs and governs that hatred. And so they are become no longer like waves that may roll at whiles against your battlements, to be withstood with valor and defeated with forethought. They are rising in a great tide to engulf you. What then shall you do? Seek to overthrow your enemy. Okay. Um, so, um, uh, this is, uh, um, this is, this is long. Um, Gandalf's explanation here is long, but obviously he's building to the same conclusion, but notice how, right? Okay, so you're at war with the other men, right? The Haradrim are coming up, the Easterlings are coming in, right? This is bad. They're wild men. Remember Faramir's distinctions, right? This is all building off the, you know, when Faramir opened his mouth and started talking and kept talking and all this stuff came out, right, that's still uh, guiding. Those are still some of the guiding concepts behind all this stuff going on, right? So, okay, so you've got the wild men, you had the men, so we had the the three divisions of men paralleling the three kindreds of the elves, right? Remember in Faramir's conversation there? Um, So we've got the men of Gondor who are sort of high Numenorians, but kind of not totally. They're sort of middlemen anyway, but they're not the wild men. And now we've got wild men issues. Uh, and um, Gandalf says, okay, um, you can't fight them and you can't make treaties with them, right? Um, notice he's he's here doing something he doesn't do in the published text, which is circumventing an argument for peace, Right? Uh, you can't make peace with them. 
right? That's not that's not going to work. You might think, well, maybe we could reestablish our role, you know, Gondor's role. Um, he brings up this idea of the, of treating with them, of teaching them, even, right? Um, no, there's not going to be any peaceful solution, because of course they're not just. This is not just a, you know. High men of the light meet wild men of the darkness, right? Um, this is this is they are being gathered together by an enemy of great power and malice, and he is filling the hearts of the wild people with hate and directing and governing that hatred. And this is a really that's a really important point. You notice that are the Harandrim evil? Are the Easterlings evil? No, they're wild. Right, their ways are not like the ways of Gondor. Um, their civilization is in a, is in a different place. They have not had the connection with the elves in the West. Right, there are many things that they have not learned. Um, but they're not evil. They don't even necessarily, intrinsically, organically hate Gondor. Right, but Sauron is making them do so. They are enslaved, right? The people of the East, the people of Harad, are enslaved spiritually by Sauron. Um, And one of the interesting sort of results of this speech is his emphasizing not only you can't overcome them, because they're way more than you are, and they're being governed by this enemy who's bringing them against you and is going to give up. It's not just that the war is hopeless. It's that there's even almost something questionable about like they're victims too, those guys, right? The other men, the wild men. There's almost this implication that the role that Gondor should be having is as teacher, right? Like the Numenorians back in the good old days. Um, but that's off the table because of Sauron. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, and yet, Tony, exactly, it's more of a spiritual war than a military one, is Gandalf's point here. Absolutely. But if we should find the ring and wield it, how would it give us victory? Asked Imrahil. Gandalf's explanation of the mechanics of this are... I, I, nowhere else is this explained, right? This is, this is a fascinating paragraph. It would not do so all in a day, answered Gandalf, but were it to come to the hand of someone of power or royalty, as, say, the Lord Aragorn, or the steward of this city, or Elrond of Imlogist, or even to me, then he, being the Ringlord, would wax ever in power and the desire of power, and all minds he would cow or dominate, so that they would blindly do his will, and he could not be slain. More, the deepest secrets of the mind and heart of Sauron would become plain to him, so that the Dark Lord could do nothing unforeseen. The Ring Lord would suck the very power and thought from him, from Sauron, so that all would forsake his allegiance and follow the Ring Lord, and they would serve him and worship him as a god. And so Sauron would be overthrown utterly and fade into oblivion. But behold, there would be Sauron still, but upon the other side, a tyrant brooking no freedom, shrinking from no deed of evil to hold his sway and to widen it. And worse, 
said Aragorn, for all that is left of the ancient power and wisdom of the West, he would also have broken and corrupted. At least Sauron is honestly opposed to the West, and so therefore uh, the, the, the ancient power and wisdom of the West and those who remember it gather together to fight against him, right? If one of them, if Aragorn or Elrond or Gandalf or even Denethor, had taken the Ring of Power and become the Ring Lord, they would have corrupted the very the, the ancient power and wisdom of the West itself, right? And so that would have been even worse. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, good. Um, this notion of the Ring Lord sucking the very power and thought from Sauron, right? So it's not just a matter of the one who takes and wields the Ring of Power will become as powerful as Sauron, right? And will uh, be able to destroy him, but will become as bad as he was, right? It's not just that. It's not just parallel to. The power of Sauron is not like the measuring stick by which we measure the power of the new Ring Lord. He will become as powerful as Sauron. No, he will get the power of He will siphon off the power of Sauron and make it himself. And through that power, that desire for power as well, that dominion over others, that enslavement of the thoughts and will of other people, uh, down to being worshipped uh, as a god, right? Um, Sauron will be, will fade into oblivion, um, but Sauron will still be, right? Because the former good guy is going to become not just as bad as Sauron. Again, he's not just a measuring stick. It's going to become him in a a deeper sense. Um, this is really kind of fascinating in lots of ways. Um, but one thing that I would emphasize... Notice the consequence of this concept. I'm not convinced... So it's possible, by the way, to say... Okay, so Gandalf is explicitly spelling this out here. This passage is cut from the final text, but that doesn't prove that Gandalf isn't thinking this, right? Um, Gandalf is still thinking this. He doesn't say it anymore in the published text. So you could make the argument that this is what's... This is the explanation of what's really going on, right? even though it's not spelled out in the main text. And that's possible. But I wonder, because in the published text, it's not just that Gandalf doesn't say this, but some of the things that he does say suggest that this isn't so. If this were still true in the published text, Sauron, notice Sauron is equally hosed. Whether the ring is destroyed or whether the ring is claimed by somebody else, Sauron is going to get almost obliterated either way, right? Sauron's fate, should Aragorn claim the ring, Sauron's fate would be just as bad, almost exactly as bad, as if the ring were destroyed. And, I mean, I can see how that would motivate him 
to try to take action against Aragorn, but it doesn't really seem to me to square with the things that Aragorn and Gandalf say in the published text. Um, uh, that basically that he Sauron is going to wait until uh, you know he's going to look for a time of division and he's going to wait until one of them. Uh, puts himself forward, right, and and uh, uh, and and is, and then he's going to move against him, right? If this were still true, it would be kind of too late for Sauron to move against anybody, right? If uh, if if at the time the the new ring lord is is established, he like sucks the essence out of Sauron, and Sauron is overthrown utterly and fading into oblivion, um, then. S- s- Sorry, sorry. Again, as I say, it's already too late for for uh, uh, for Sauron. Um, yeah, so, Tim. Exactly. Yeah, uh, Sauron would be enslaved to his own ring by the new ring lord. Yes, yes. Essentially. Um, yeah. Um, now you're right, Brian. It's possible that the ring could fall into the hands of someone who couldn't use it successfully. But again, Gandalf knows, presumably Sar- Sauron does too. That ain't Aragorn, right? Um, the whole kind of premise from the Hornburg on, right, from from Aragorn's looking into the Orthanc stone on, is that he's got the ring, right, that he's the Lord of the Ring. Um, so, I, so yeah, I, 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 Sauron would know that he could he could do it, right? Now, Matt, you're right, it wouldn't all happen in a day, right, exactly as Gandalf says. So, you know, maybe there's still enough time for him to move. Um, yeah, yeah, possibly. But um, what it certainly does is emphasize why, what cause Sauron has to panic, right? Why is it that Sauron so completely sells out? Why does he take the bait uh, so completely, right? Um, and the answer, this is one answer. Because this is the future that is in store for him. Not just the arming of a rival beyond where, like, so that maybe he, the new rival Aragorn, would be able to defeat him, right? Uh, no, it's not that. It's, uh, it's, for Sauron, much, much worse than that. Um, and it also, for me, it just kind of changes things. Thinking about the fact that Sauron, um... Sauron's in a cleft stick of his own cutting, right? I mean, Sauron is is um, uh, what's uh, what's Pippin's phrase? Either way, his outlook is poor, right? Um, yeah, either way, his outlook is poor. Uh, the uh, the world of trouble that Sauron is in here, um, the extent of Sauron's own despair. Sauron has to be not just moving prematurely, not even just panicking, right? Sauron has to be near despair. The clock is ticking, and he's not got not that much time. It wouldn't do so in a day, but how many days has he got? Um, yeah, anyway, fascinating. And then, the best quotation that's not in the published text. By far, hands down, my favorite thing that we have seen from the cutting room floor. Then what is the use of this ring, said Imrahil. Victory, said Gandalf, changed immediately to Hurin, Warden of the Keys. At least we should have won the war, and not this foul lord of Mordor. 
So might many a brave knight of the Mark or the Realm speak, said Imrahil. But surely more wisdom is required of lords in council. Victory is in itself worthless, unless Gondor stand for some good, that let it not stand at all. And if Mordor doth not stand for some evil, that we will not brook in Mordor or out of it, then let it triumph. Victory is in itself worthless. I tweeted this passage earlier today uh, from Victory is in itself worthless on uh, and said I want this on a poster. I really do. I want to. I, I want this framed. This is, is one of my goals now. I want a framed copy of that quotation. That is absolutely uh, fantastic. In fact, um, just to get slightly autobiographical for a minute, this is kind of the. Um, um, this is kind of the premise um, on which I've kind of run Signum University, actually, from the beginning. Uh, and it's funny because I had forgotten about this quote entirely. Uh, and yet I find I've been like um, paraphrasing it, essentially, uh, at several points. Uh, I, you know, Many times people have sort of questioned whether or not the premises on which Signum is based will work. Right. Like, you know, is that like the way to uh, to succeed long term? You know, is, is this really going to thrive financially? Uh, and my response has always been if we cannot like success in itself is worthless. Right. You know, a business continuing and and prospering. What is that worth? Right. What does that gain? Um, I would rather attempt to do things the right way, even if that means failing, right? Even if that means we go under. I would rather have done that and go under. And if we can't succeed financially without compromising the things that I think are so important, the things that make Signum different from what everybody else is doing, right? If we can't succeed without that, then we don't deserve to succeed, you know? Then, you know... Uh, then let it not stand at all. Um, it's been kind of exactly the premise upon which I've been operating, actually. Um, victory in itself is worthless. Anyway, um, I don't have much else to say about this passage apart from the fact that this is just really wonderful. Um, then let it triumph. Let Mordor triumph. If it doth not stand for some evil that we will not brook in Mordor or out of it. Um, and think how this goes also with Gandalf's earlier passage about the Easterlings and the Haradrim, right? Thinking of sports teams for a second, Imrahil says, we're not rooting for laundry here, folks, right? This is not about our team has to win at all costs, Right? We are on Gondor's side, and so Gondor must win at all, no matter what happens. If Gondor wins, that's good, right? And if Mordor, because they're our enemy, if they lose, then that's good. And Imrahil says, that's not how it works, right? We fight for Gondor not because it's Gondor. We're not just fighting for the home team, right? We are fighting for something that means something. We are defending, and if we no longer fight for that, if we no longer defend that, then what do we have to fight for? What's the point of fighting? Right? There isn't any point. And if Mordor is not worth opposing, if by opposing Mordor we're not opposing something bigger and more important, right? If we're not standing against a real evil that is seeking to do evil and extend and perpetuate evil, if we're not standing against that, then why stand? Right? 
if this were just us and the Easterlings, if they wanted to expand and we would quite rather they didn't, right? Um, and it were not, um, and, 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 and this, you know, we weren't standing for some good and they weren't uh, standing for some evil. Situation is not nearly as clear, right? Um, yeah, yeah. Uh, awesome wisdom from Prince Imrahil, and I'm awfully glad he exists. The strong statements of Gandalf about his despair, right? Not just that he's worried, but hearing him describe his moment of despair. Now it is known to you that I have set the ring in peril. From Faramir, we learn that it passed to the very borders of Mordor before this assault began, maybe on the first day of the darkness. And, my lords, it went by the way of Morgul. Slender indeed is the hope that the bearer can have escaped the perils of that way, of the horrors that wait there. Still less is the hope that even if he comes through them to the black land, he can pass there unmarked. Six days have gone, and hourly I watch the signs with great dread in my heart. What are these signs that you look for? An enemy something? You on our something? asked Imrahil. Darkness, said Gandalf. That is my dread. And darkness began. And therefore, for a while, I felt a despair deeper than Denethor. But the darkness that is to be feared is not such as we have endured. It would not need clouds in the air. It would begin in our hearts, feeling afar the power of the Ringlord, and grow till by sunlight or moonlight or under heaven or under roof all would seem dark to us. This darkness was but a device to make us despair, and it has, as such deceits, something our enemy. The next sign is strife among the lords. A following draft reaches Gandalf's argument as it appears in The Return of the King. Um, anyway, we'll come back to that in a second. Uh, so, first there is Gandalf's description of his moment of despair. Even before Faramir told him, right? Remember that moment when Faramir is reporting about meeting with Frodo and how Frodo went on to Morgul and Gandalf's, like, freaking out, right? Or is, like, trying not to freak out? Gandalf is suggesting, even before that even before he that the reason he was freaking out when he was talking to Faramir is that Faramir's words seemed to confirm what he was already despairing at the thought of right the darkness has come so this is Gandalf's answer to the question if Sauron got the ring what would happen what would Sauron's inescapable victory look like if he got the ring. And Gandalf answers that question. What would it look like? Darkness. It would look like darkness. The darkness that would come would not be a physical darkness, not a pall of clouds in the sky that just makes it hard to see. No, the darkness that Sauron would send if he got the ring back is a darkness that would fill our own hearts so that even if we were walking under the sunrise we would still be in darkness, right? The sunlight and moonlight itself would become as darkness to us because our own hearts and wills would be darkened by the will of Sauron. That would be... That's what you'd look for, right? That's how you would know that Sauron got the ring. So he's saying to himself, all right, if Sauron gets the ring, what it would look like is going to be darkness spreading over the land... Oh, 
look at darkness spreading over the land, right? And he's like, oh man, that's it. That's it. So when the dawnless day comes, Gandalf's response is despair. His first thought is, he, Frodo's failed, right? Frodo's been captured. Um, Sauron has the ring. But he rallies, right? Even before he learns more, he rallies as he realizes, no, this isn't that darkness. This is a shadow of that shadow, right? This is only a superficial darkness. This is only an instrument that Sauron is trying to use to artificially create the despair in our hearts that he could immediately and forcibly create if he did have the ring. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. Tom says you can see an Uncle Imrahil where Faramir gets his ideals. Uh, yeah, yeah. Faramir and Imrahil do seem to uh, have a lot in common in that way. Um, yeah, so anyway, so th- this is just, again, just uh, wonderful to hear Gandalf speaking this explicitly about all these things. Uh, and it gives this, I think, I, I, I can't help but think that this is, this is still going on in the published text, right? Gandalf doesn't explain it all, but that this is still what's going on in, uh, in Gandalf's head. Um, but of course, the other thing, the, the thing that Sauron would look for, uh, how would Sauron know that they have the ring, that a new ring lord is arising? And the answer is strife among the lords, right? That's, that's what it would look like. Um, and then Christopher adds, and I love this bit. This never occurred to me. This never would have occurred to me. Um, he adds to those signs that Sauron will have observed. He may also have seen in the stone the death of Denethor. And since he judges all by himself, he may well deem that a first sign of strife among his chief foes. That is incredible. That is incredible. To imagine Sauron... I never, ever, ever would have thought of this. Sauron sitting there looking in his palantir, right? And what does he see? When he looks towards Minas Tirith, he sees Denethor in flames. He sees Denethor being burned alive. Those savages! Right? Oh, man, boy, there's strife among the lords, and then there's strife among the lords, right? Holy cow. So, if those guys over there across the river have already sunk to burning each other alive, right? I'll show my rival, right? Who's boss over here? Ergon, the king has returned, doggone it, right? Don't like it, Denethor? I'm gonna set you on fire, right? I'm going to burn you alive, and I'm going to make Sauron watch. I'm going to give you the Palantir. I'm going to force you to hold the Palantir in your hands while I burn you alive, right? And that way Sauron will know, like, this This will be a message, right? It's, you know, Gandalf's like, this is how Sauron would think. Um, it never occurred to me that Sauron would draw that conclusion from what he saw, but it makes perfect sense, right? How else would Sauron interpret what he sees? He's not going to really get the madness of Denethor exactly, is he? I mean, he did encourage the madness of Denethor, but I love this reading. I love this reading. Um, it is awesome. Okay. couple odds and ends, and then we're done. Um, uh, uh, so this... <laughs> Okay. Then even as they debated, a rider came in search of Amir. 
Lord, he said, word has come from Anorian, from the north roads. Theoden King, when we rode hither, left men behind to watch the movements of the enemy at Amundin. They sent word that there has been war far away in the wold, and thence come strange tidings. For some say the very woods have changed to. For some have said that wild things of the woods have fallen on the orcs and driven them into the river and the rapids of Sarngebir. But the army that was on the road has heard this news and also of our victory here, and is afraid and even now hastening back. Ha, said Amir, if they dare to assail us, they will rue it. If they seek to fly past, they shall be smitten. We must cut off this finger of the black hand, ere it is withdrawn. Treebeard still needing to make, um, uh, still needing to make, uh, the book, right? We've seen, he so wants to bring Treebeard back in. He so wants to get, and even as he's dialing back, you know the ants and this to we at least want to get second a second hand account right of the ants coming in and attacking the orcs and of course in the final published text treebeard just kind of mentions it in passing right um we don't get any kind of account of the war between uh the the, the it still happens right but we don't get any so they don't get to come to daggerlad anymore they don't we, they don't even, but this is like the last, so uh, uh you know uh treebeard has a really good agent who is trying to get him better billing in the return of the king um but uh at the end of the day they still keep cutting back um yeah good okay very, very brief reference, but a fascinating moment. Um, this is just that like random bit that happened to be on the piece of manuscript that some of this chapter was written on. Rescue of Frodo. Frodo is lying naked in the tower, but Sam finds by some chance that the elven cloak of Lorien is lying in a corner. When they disguise themselves, they put on the gray cloaks over all and become practically invisible. In Mordor, the cloaks of the elves become like a dark mantle of shadow. Um, and that is really the reason that that is so interesting to me is that it belies what is in the published text about the cloaks, right? Sam says, are these magic cloaks? And the elves are like, I don't know what you mean by that, right? Uh, in what sense are they magic cloaks? They're elvish garments, certainly, right? Um, what that means is the elves put the thought of all they love into all they make, um, and we've talked about that before in other contexts, but, um, or was it exploring the Lord of the Rings? Where I was just talking about that. No, I think it was when I was talking about the, the, uh, Barrow Blade. But anyway, never mind. Um, the point is, these are magic cloaks. It turns out, right? Um, if the elves put the thought of all that they love into all that they make, does all that they love include dark mantle of sh- the shadow? is in the cloaks as well. The thought of the shadow was put in there. Um, They're not just magic invisibility cloaks, right? Or magic camouflage cloaks. Except they are acting like magic camouflage cloaks. So that in itself is kind of interesting. And yeah, Yana, there is a striking resemblance. It's not exactly to the Nazgul cloaks, because the Nazgul cloaks, in fact, it's almost opposite to the Nazgul cloaks, right? The Nazgul cloaks are, are black, but they're plain cloaks. They're the least shadowy thing about them, right? They're the most tangible element uh, of them. I mean, if you take a sword and you slash at the uh, the Nazgul, you might hit nothing but cloak, right? Um, which will have a perfectly ordinary cut in it, um, like any other cloak. But yet, nevertheless, um, I agree that it's dark mantle of shadow is very ring-wraithy, 
right? Much more ring wraithy than I would expect elvish cloaks to get at any time. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, but, uh, but yeah, anyway, so yeah, it, it's, it, that similarity is certainly very, uh, um, very important. And yes, James, uh, Lieback and Tom Hillman at exactly the same time said, but it's also like Luthien, right? Uh, yeah, it is like Luthien, the dark mantle of shadow. But there, of course, that is, um, the, and you're thinking of her, her sleepy cloak, right? The one that she wove out of her own hair, um, uh, which is therefore because her hair is black, uh, dark and shadowy, her cloak. Um, yes, it is like that. So, and it's not that there's no precedent, um, but even there, you know, does this suggest that the idea of the magic cloaks of Lorien are more like Luthien's cloak than like the description that we get later? Because Luthien's cloak, um, if, um, if Sam asked Luthien, is that a magic cloak? She would kind of have to have said yes, right? I mean, she did spells and there were like bowls of like special water in the moonlight. And, uh, there were, there were material components, uh, and, uh, uh, and songs and everything. Um, it was, um, it was, it was, uh, it was a magic spell, right? She was definitely casting a spell in order to make that cloak. Um, and no, Lynn, I agree. Not all shadows are bad shadows. You're absolutely right. And again, Luthien is certainly a, a, a good example of that. But my point is, it suggests that this does not work like uh, the way that we will we are told in the published text they work. Right. So, um, again, my, my point is the one I was just making there at the end. Um, when Sam says, are these magic cloaks, the elves can be like, no, no, not exactly, right? It's not really how it works. With Luthien, that, yeah, that was how it works. It was magic. It was a spell. Uh, she used the word spell. Exactly, yeah, there's no plausible deniability about the magic cloaks here. Uh, so it's interesting to see that he is still... Without this passage, I wouldn't have guessed necessarily that the cloaks were were still that far down towards the Book of Lost Tales end of the spectrum when it came to, you know, magic things. Okay. Christopher Tolkien gives us this random passage without explanation. On the back of the last page of this typescript is the following remarkable passage on which I can cast no light. It is written in a fine, ornate script together with other odds and ends of phrases in the same manuscript, characteristic of my father's habit of doodling in this way. Then spoke Alessar. <clears throat> Many, Guthrond, would hold that your insolence merited rather punishment than answer from your king. But since you have in open malice uttered lies in the hearing of many, I will first lay bare their falsehood, so that all here may know you for what you are and have ever been. Afterwards, maybe, a chance shall be given you to repent and turn from your old evil. Who is Guthrond? To whom was he lying? About what? Um, we don't know, right? Christopher says he can cast no light on this passage at all. It would seem to be 
one of those King Alessar sitting in judgment, like with the Baragond passage, right? Um, no idea. No idea. It, it, Jennifer, clearly with the, with the Alessar thing, it's clearly after he's made king. No idea who Guthrond is or what's going on here. Um, is Guthrond a person or a group of people? I think Guthrond... No, yeah, yeah, no, okay. Um, so, Stephen, my reading is that there should be commas around Guthrond. I think it's in a... Many Guthrond... Oh, so, uh, hey, Guthrond, many would hold that your insolence merited. That, that, that's, that's how you... This is, this is direct address to Guthrond, um, I believe. Guthrond is the bad guy here. Um, I'm guessing he's Rohir. He, he must be from Rohan. Guthrond sounds Rohiric to me. But, uh, anyway, we don't know anything about this. However, nevertheless, I think this is a really, really awesome moment. Um, those of you who have been around for a long time, uh, remember The Lost Road? Volume 5? Yes, 5. Volume 5 of the History of Middle-Earth. So remember The Lost Road? Um, and in the early chapters of The Lost Road, um, with uh, Alboin and, Al- and uh, Alduin, the guy who, from his childhood, has these elvish words just kind of pop in and come to him, right? And he doesn't, uh, um, he doesn't know exactly where they come from, but he describes the sense, the experience, the sensation, right? That, like, he just wakes up knowing that, you know, Isil means moon, right, in one elf language, but Ithil also means moon in the other elf language, right? He just kind of, it's like he hears it. It's like he, he's, he's getting these things like messages. It's, or, you know, he, so he's not sure like sort of where it's floating into him from, right? Um, but it's floating, it's definitely coming from somewhere. And The Lost Road is kind of the story that's explaining, um, uh, is, is the story that's explaining sort of how that happens and where it comes from. Right and why it comes to him, and at the time when we were talking about the Lost Road, I was emphasizing that it's you know there are really two places in Tolkien's fiction where I can't. I mean, you know, and I've been talking about this since literally the very first podcast episode I ever recorded. I've been talking about how I try to resist thinking too much about you know, applying this to Tolkien's life, you know, thinking about, um, you know, because to me, just to me, the question, what does this tell us about Tolkien's life is just not as interesting a question as other questions we can be asking. And if, certainly, if you read the story only for the purpose of trying to understand the psychology of the author better, then Tolkien would say, in fact, did say that you were missing the point. Um, But there are a couple places where I can't help but be... uh, can't help but hear autobiography, um, where Tolkien, just from what we do know of him, seems to be describing in fiction his own experience. Um, one is Leaf by Niggle, the short story Leaf by Niggle. Um, allegorized version of his own experience, but still uh, what really seems to be uh, about his own uh, his own experience as a 
as a, uh, you know, as a creative artist. And, uh, and of course he, he kind of admitted that later on. Um, the lost road is the other. Um, and I, it's that character sounds just like him. My point is the father, his father's habit of doodling in this way, right. Of just jotting down these random passages, these things. And it just, it's, it reminds me of the lost road, right. Christopher can cast no light on this passage. Why can Christopher cast no light on this passage? I think pretty clearly because Tolkien could have cast no light on this passage. Tolkien doesn't understand this, right? If you ask Tolkien, who's Guthrond? I I would bet almost anything that his response would be, I have no idea who Guthrond is, right? So, like, what insolent thing did Guthrond do? No idea what in, what insolent thing Guthrun did. I really don't think that he knew. Um, and we've seen at many points, and we've talked about him discovering things, right? He, this seems to be another one of those moments where he's he's discovered something, but he never figures it out. Um, it floats off, right? It never gets detached to the rest of the narrative because he never discovers what it means. He never discovers how it fits. He, but here's this bit, and look how fully formed this bit is. Right? This is this is not just um, this is not just an outline. This is not just a concept. This is like something overheard through a keyhole. Right. But you don't know the context and you don't, and then like somebody's coming and you have to get it and you never hear the rest of it, right? Um, it's like a piece of overheard conversation that gets doodled onto the, the, uh, the page of, manu- of TypeScript. And, you know, he never does learn the whole story behind Guthrand. And that's just, so although this, this passage is completely, it seems totally out there, right? And, uh, you know, might not necessarily contribute, certainly doesn't contribute very much that's very concrete to our understanding of Aragorn, for instance. Um, and yet, um, it's, uh, it does, I think, show us something really important and something really exciting about Tolkien's own, um, Tolkien's own process, his own creative process. Not something brand new, but it's a startling illustration of this thing that we've seen before. Okay, this is it. Final slide. No more is said in the draft of the history of the Lieutenant of Barad-dûr, the nameless mouth of Sauron, than that it is told that he was a living... Uh, wait, a living, living man, I think. A living man who, being captured as a youth, became a servant of the Dark Tower, and because of his cunning, grew high in the Lord's favor. That is, okay, so we've decided this dude is not a wraith, right? He's not an unquiet spirit. He's not, an, he's not a fell spirit of the ancient days. He's just a guy who, as a child, was captured and 
was cunning and grew high in Sauron's favor. In the fair copy, this was repeated, but was changed subsequently to, but it is said that he was a renegade, son of a house of wise and noble men in Gondor, who, becoming enamored of evil knowledge, entered the service of the Dark Tower, and because of his cunning and the fertile cruelty of his mind and servility, he grew ever higher in the Lord's favor. These phrases being thus bracketed in the original. In the return of the king, the mouth of Sauron came of the race of those that are named the Black Numenorians. Um, exactly, James. Yeah, he started out in the mailroom and worked his way up. Absolutely. Um, uh, yeah, Brianna, you're right. This would be a great premise uh, for this. This would be a great subplot uh, in uh, in the Amazon uh, series. Absolutely. I want to see. I want to see juvenile mouth of Sauron uh, first captured or. Uh, or yeah, that we totally need his backstory. We can connect it with the backstory of young Aragorn. Why not? Right? It'd be great. Um, anyway, yeah. So, uh, we've abandoned the. So remember, first Sauron was going to come out and Parley, and then we didn't want Sauron to come out. So then it was going to be the Wizard King. It's got to be. It's got. You know. It's. It's. If it's not going to be him, it's got to be his second hand guy. Right? You know. His. Uh, his. 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 His right hand guy, not his second hand guy. That's. Different. That's a totally different thing. Actually, the ring wraith kind of was a second-hand guy if you think about it. But anyway, okay, right. So uh, you get his 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 right-hand guy, and that's the wizard king. So we resurrect the wizard king from undeath, re-death, or whatever it was, in order to bring him back, and 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 we're going to prevent Eowyn killing him. Now that's out, right? He's gonna he's gonna be re-killed, and he's gonna remain re-killed. Um, and so he turn he gives this important role to an increasingly marginal character. Um, and the one thing, the one glimpse that we're given of him then is that he becomes, I don't know, not quite like, he's not like the anti-Aragorn in the sense that he has any, some kind of heritage or destiny. Um, but uh, that there is... I mean, if you think about it, the mouth of Sauron is quite unique, right? Nowhere else do we get... I don't know, I just did the thing where you, I used an adverb to modify the adjective unique, which you're never supposed to do. But he is unique, right? Um, every other major servant of Sauron that we've gotten has been either a wraith <clears throat> or an orc, right? Or somebody... I mean the Haradrim have captains and generals and kings, right? But none of them are... Uh, we don't see any of them. And remember, we just got that long speech from Gandalf about how they're not intrinsically evil, right? They're not really dedicated to evil. They've, they're they being dominated and, and enslaved um, by the will of Sauron, right? This guy's a collaborator. So... Uh, He's an interesting kind of counterpoint to some of Gandalf's speeches, right? Okay, so the enemy is not necessarily all bad. They're being misled and manipulated and uh, and deceived and even enslaved uh, by Sauron. Sauron is the real enemy. Oh, except this guy. This guy is the enemy too, right? He has bought in all the way, right? Um, the fertile cruelty of his mind, right? Uh, and that combination of fertile cruelty and servility that really make him, uh, you know, move up the ladder there. <laughs> Brian Dimmick says, maybe his real name is Guthrod. 
<laughs> I love it. That's Guthron. There you go. There you go. It's a little more than just uh, uh, impudent. No, it wasn't impudent. What was the word? What was the word? The uh, insolent. Yeah, not just insolent. Um, oh, that's interesting. James says he's like a fallen Boromir, right? Yeah, so we get the uh, maybe a bit of a glimpse of what... Now, you know, Boromir... In a sense, Boromir would have been more tragic, right? Because he was still at least, you know, had good motives. This guy never had good motives um, that we know of, right? I mean, he's been uh, trying to win friends and influence people, you know, among the baddies for his whole life. Um, yeah, original draft Boromir, perhaps. Something like it, right? Maybe, maybe. <laughs> Kitriana says this guy is what Bill Fernie aspired to be. Yeah, I, I, I agree. I agree, Kitriana. Yeah, Bill Fernie has a poster of this guy, uh, absolutely, uh, at his hunting lodge. That's this is uh, this is the personal role model of the Bill Fernies of the world. Yeah, that seems exactly correct. Okay, good. All right. And with that, we are done with, not quite with the History of Middle-Earth series that we're finished with all three of the, or not quite with the History of the Lord of the Rings series. Um, But thus, we have completed Book 8 of the History of Middle-Earth, as we are now fully two-thirds of the way through the entire History of Middle-Earth series, and we shall resume with Book 9, thanks to the votes of the electorate, and continue... Finishing the end, finding out what happens with book six, reading uh, the uh, the epilogue that was, you know, what was uh, uh, what was old Gamgee going to be saying with his children and everything later on. So we'll get that stuff and then we'll read the Notion Club papers, uh, which is a really exciting piece of fiction um, where he's going to go back to the to the Lost Road ideas uh, and uh, kind of return to that story and uh, take it in a different direction. So we're going to get the Notion Club papers, which are really, really interesting. Um, and um, and some more Numenor stuff as well. That's what we'll get in Sauron Defeated. But first, Sir Thomas Mowry, Lamort d'Arthur, we're going to get our Middle English on, and we're going to read one of the great classics of all of English literature and the cornerstone of all modern Arthurian. Really, as I say, kind of the centerpiece, I would say, of like the entire the the of, of the entire Arthurian tradition. So, thanks all for joining me. We will be back in three weeks. Three weeks from today, on the eleventh of July, we will begin our discussion of. Uh, Sir Thomas Mallory. Thanks, everybody, for joining us. I didn't do too... It's late. I know it's late. But I started a little bit late, and then we talked about Mallory. This was... Remember the remember the Princess Bride class where I went for like three and a half hours on the last session? It's been way worse before. Um, all right. Thanks, everybody. Good night, and I will see some of you in a matter of hours. Uh, I'll see... I'm going to be down in Washington, D.C. about 13 hours from now. So thanks, everybody. Good night now. Bye.